origin, alien. Location, Antarctica. Age, unknown. Intent, survival. Destination, man. John Carpenter's The Thing, the ultimate in alien terror, rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check newspapers for local listings. I've got I mean, this. That, that oh, very expensive. That the yeah. That's the novelization that's really expensive. Man's <laughs> warmest place to hide is a hole. Or what does that say on the top? Man is the warmest place to hide. Oh, man is the one. And it's Ooh, true. That's, that's true. Cool. That's very true, guys. Yeah. It's not a Tom Tom. <laughs> Whenever you're cold, just yeah. find a man. Did you call it a Tom Tom? Like, I did, did indeed. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> what is it? What's the Star Wars thing? That, it's it's Tom Tom. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> What's the Star Wars thing? Those are very warm. Yeah, yeah must they be. are. Uh, well, <clears throat> that being said, <laughs> welcome back to another episode of Reconsinimation. I'm John Diner. I'm David Munchak. I'm Brent Hutchins. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And as we announced on our last episode, which was Batman, that you can find in the archives at www.reconsimation.com. We are going to take a hopefully short pause on our episodes. Uh, we're we're going to uh, make this one today, which is a very, very special episode that we're going to get to in a moment. Uh, but we are going to take a break and a hiatus, and I'm not sure how long that's going to be, but there's some, some stuff outside of this show that's come up that's going to kind of make it difficult for a little while so whenever we can get back to doing shows and we're going to we just we don't know exactly when that's going to be maybe a month maybe two we'll see we'll uh so stay tuned uh don't don't give up on the show everyone listening stay tuned we're gonna have more but uh like i said we're gonna before we go into that pause we're gonna do one of probably our biggest episodes and come sort of full circle but we had to, we just had to have somebody super special join us, uh, who's also sort of an expert in this field. Welcome back to the show, EK Wimmer. Welcome back, buddy. Hey, hey. <laughs> you really set me up there for failure. So <laughs> it's the I'll man be who a knows. first. I've never seen you fail on on any of yeah, these. You're I'll do my a, best. You're always a killer. I, I was yeah. gonna say the man who knows every single thing about this this movie. It's uh, EK Wimmer, but. Well, well, I would defer to you on this episode, but I will say I, I enjoy any time it is John Carpenter related. I come like my my ears are burning and I'm I'm there and ready to talk about anything John Carpenter. And if you add Kurt Russell to the mix. Oh, yeah. 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 You don't have to yep. twist my arm. Yeah. No. And this is this is really a full circle episode because our very first episode of the show, again, you can find it in the archives at reconsideration.com, was John Carpenter's Escape from New York. So here we are 137 episodes later and we're right back with Carpenter's next movie. So <laughs> after all, seems that, but... fitting. I think it's brilliant. And it's uh, we're also celebrating Kurt Russell's upcoming birthday. So it's it's a ginormous episode. Last year, of course, we had uh, Kurt Russell's 
birthday coincided with our our hundredth episode special. So, which EK, you were you joined us for that as well? <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a party. It was that was wild. Was Your interns, one. man. Your interns were out of control. <laughs> yeah, super busy. They get was... that way. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, here we go. So we are going to talk about John Carpenter's The Thing, and uh, I've been waiting for this one for a long time. If you thought I was excited about Three Men and a Baby, this is going to just <laughs> ratchet it up one more notch. <laughs> is this in the grandma collection can we just find can we get that out of the way real quick no i just this is, have to know nope this did it not wasn't. make the grandma collection no nope, no nope. this is like the first movie in the last like six that we've done that wasn't in the grandma <laughs> we, collection we so had a streak pretty, yeah that's it was that's pretty unique in itself it was three men and a baby and a fish called wanda we're both in the grandma collection but uh actually and batman batman was so all three uh last month there you go I, i'm not lying <laughs> But uh, yeah, so let's talk about it. There's so much to talk about this movie. It, this this episode might go on a bit. There's a lot to cover. We've got the the uh, novel, uh, novella. We've got the the 1951 film, the making of this one, and all the fallout and what's happened with it since. But uh, 1982, what a year for movies. I mean, that was a huge year. So many so many big movies came out that year. Some of which didn't like this one. Didn't get its stat true status until later on but god i mean what came out this year brent your one of your all-time favorite movies came out right let's do it et yeah for sure mm -hmm. the uh the extraterrestrial it's uh i think this movie going up against that movie had a lot of had a lot of weight because that was like a super popular alien movie right at the same time totally different demographic but um but yeah that one kind of took the the nation by storm and is mm -hmm. absolutely one of my favorite movies. And, you know, one of the movies that pushed me into wanting to work in the industry and, you know, make movies myself. So, when you were three, you're like, I got it. Got to do make it. Movies. <laughs> you, uh, still have, you still have no idea how old I am, huh? <laughs> I thought you were three. Maybe you're four. You're four at the time, Maybe man. I remember seeing ET at the theater. Wow, you were four. We you're have, not seventy. We what? How old discussed you? It. you guys were? Weren't you guys? You and John in the same year in college? What? Yeah, but the way that ET rolled out at the theater, it was like a slow burn, you know. So like, just because it, you know, it it kind of spread and spread and spread. All right. Yeah. So All it right. was. I was. I was closer to five, but All right. uh, I do recall it. And then you know, it that movie was interesting because VHS wasn't what, and home video wasn't what, what it, it is today or, right. or got to. And so it was impossible to find versions to watch. And so mm -hmm. there was kind of a, an allure to the absence of being able to watch it again. I um, remember being a kid, there was this thick thing of like ETs on video cassette. You got to get it. No. You got it for Christmas. Yeah, or something. It, it was a big yeah. deal. I'm it was like, a big oh, yeah, deal when it, when it, when it first came out. Yeah. Like, but yeah. that was like years and years after couple years came, yeah, yeah. My, the my parents had a a bootleg copy on betamax and it was like literally somebody set up a camera in the theater just so that was how i Wait, saw it where what yeah. what street corner is your dad going to to go find the et bootleg i have uh, no idea the right we, the right you don't even want to know we gotta talk to your dad about this. we gotta find out where, where are you getting the you <laughs> 
Oh, you want ET? Okay. <laughs> Opens a jacket. Go down the, just, just, yeah, like there's just just VHS videos, tapes, like Betamax tapes, just laying. Uh, I see the scenario being more like the beginning of Gremlins, or his dad just <laughs> yeah. has to have it. You know, that's a good call. <laughs> He'll do whatever it takes to get it for his boy. <laughs> old wise man in some basement, like yeah. store. You know, that's yeah. Don't great. play that beta after midnight. You know what'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh That's my great. god. Yeah, but you know, ET was what the number one movie that year, right? 82. I believe so, yeah. Hell yeah. But there were so many more so many other great movies, some of which we've covered here. 48 hours we covered. Halloween mm. three, season of the witch, mm. Brent's favorite movie. Not uh, really. the king of <laughs> the king of comedy. King of comedy. Yeah. That is a great movie. Yep. Uh, I like Conan, that one a lot. Conan Fast the Barbarian. Yeah. Yeah, fast, fast times. times right? Yeah, geez, we did a lot of eighty-two. We were stuck on eighty-two for a while, uh, okay. but then some that we didn't we didn't get a chance to cover. Maybe we will down the road. But Poltergeist, uh, The Verdict, uh, Blade Runner, First Blood. I can't believe we didn't cover First Blood, but hey, you know, there's something to look forward to. And of cool. course, don't you dare forget Megaforce. Oh yeah, the movie Megaforce. that tops them all. <laughs> there's a couple of good horrors that came out that year too. Creep Show was a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, House on Sorority Row, which is one of my favorites that yep. came out too. That was uh, the, the copy that I had was home recorded that my dad brought home. It was one of the first horror movies I ever saw. And that was 82 as well. That's awesome. Not in 82, but I mean, yeah. shortly. <laughs> yeah. after. A little later. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and it just goes on and on. There's so many, so many great movies that's, that stand the test of time. And, uh, and we're going to look at this one, which really didn't do well at all when it first came out and it took years for it its reputation to finally come back around but um david how about you do your traditional Hmm. plot rundown for the thing well what's really unfortunate is i we were doing preparing for the show it was like oh you know top top favorite movies right now with with the crew so i just watched mortal Kombat again and uh (laughs) prep for that and i didn't even realize we weren't doing mortal Kombat, so they're pretty close yeah almost almost identical so but if i can remember if i can reach back into my my brain about the thing uh you know there's a science research center uh in the antarctic antarctica Mm -hmm. and um they uh there is a a an invader that comes from a, a different a different outpost and you know this american crew is trying to figure out why this Norwegian crew had, uh, you know, uh, they had made some discoveries and then disaster struck. And now they they feel that something has happened to them and they quickly realize they've been invaded by an, an otherworldly presence that can take can take their forms and spread. And it, it goes from a, you know, kind of a thriller to a well, it's a mystery thriller action sci-fi movie it's got there's so much going and drama and just drama just character drama so uh yeah this is a this is one of those movies that just hits all the notes for you know um that's a really whatever your kind of whatever your bag is you're you're gonna kind of i think you know feel intrigued and engaged in some way so this is one of those almost perfect movies in terms of uh plot pacing uh and uh, theme and uh, uh, genre. I don't know. Unless you're looking for a romantic comedy, then this, this one probably wouldn't fit that bill. 
this is not a romantic comedy mostly (laughs) so correct when was uh ek we'll start with you when was the first time you saw the thing were you how old were you were you kid you see it when you were older no i saw it when i was um pretty young i wouldn't say mid-teen i would say probably you know maybe 12 to 13 somewhere around there but when i saw it for the first time i think at that age i was just more interested in the the setting you know it being this cold isolated setting really struck me and of course the creature feature part of it you know the horror of it was really gruesome it wasn't until years later you know, every time I would watch it as I got a little older, it got a little more interesting. And I think that's something that's fascinating about this one is I've seen it basically my whole life, but I feel like every time I watch it, uh, it kind of strikes a different note. And I don't know a lot of movies that have the ability to kind of age with you. <laughs> you know, they they tend to be stuck in their time and their one message. But this one, there's a lot of different readings you can take away from this. So even though I saw it early on, I don't think that that my first impression really is the same impression I hold today at all. Yeah, the the themes especially, which we'll get into in a little while, that they really do carry over through time. I mean, a, a lot of the it doesn't matter what what time period you're in, that's always going to be something that that rings sort of true. But yeah, interesting. Brent, what about you? When did you first uh, check this one out? Uh, you know, I think the first time I saw it was probably late night cable, you know, um, I remember seeing this and something and like night of the living dead. It was probably around Halloween time. They used to play like these back to back, like horror Mm -hmm. chunks late at night. And, uh, I'm pretty sure that both of these were, or both of those movies, uh, were the same night, like watching it late, like into the, into the early hours of the morning. Um, and you know, like I didn't pay much attention to it then. Like it didn't similar to what EK is saying, you know, like it's kind of one of those movies that as I've gotten older, it's, it's, I've, it's become more and more uh, for, to use a strange word, like endearing to me. And so there's, there's just like, I don't know, it's something that's kind of aged well for me. And, and each time I watch it, I feel like I like it more and more. And so, but it wasn't until really junior high or middle school that I, that I kind of watched it again for the first time and saw it and was paying closer attention because, you know, I was more interested in, in the macabre and kind of the horror movie scene and kind of similar, uh, you know, to the, the creature feature effects and things like that. And so, um, so, you know, it was around that, that time frame, but yeah, similar. It's just uh, as as I've kind of gotten older and seen it a number of times now. Like it's just one of those movies that uh, you know you can kind of sit down and just kind of put on and watch. And the tension and suspense that's built throughout the movie, like it just like no matter how many times you watch it, like it's done so well, like it still resonates each time. So it's a uh, you know it's it's a uh, it's really well done. It's a great movie. Uh, David, what about you? Was this a first time watch for you? Oh, no, no, no. All but right. the first time I probably watched it was like, what, six years ago with you? <laughs> with me, yeah. <laughs> was that when we did it outside in one of the outside no, summer screenings? Or? I think before that. I think before that. Okay. Yeah, I think we had just watched it before that. I yeah. think John was like, you idiot. You need to watch this. <laughs> you I definitely, poser. You, you <laughs> yeah. stupid. Uh, so, yeah, no, and uh, so, but I've I've probably seen it 
three or four times and 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 then one more time for the show so uh and and yeah you know what i to be honest in preparing for the show i'm like all right i'm gonna watch the thing and it's great like i wasn't i'm like i'm gonna get bored i'm gonna uh there's some uh, okay i've already seen it and it's none of that like there, there's something engaging about the just the just everything about this is is quite surprising for 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 someone like me who's not like like you three uh you know you know and then it still holds the attention the the and everything about it's great the with it with the pacing and story and and just everything that you need to be engaged it's all there like it's it's really well done that no matter i think no matter who's watching this is going to be just completely engaged whether they're like you know someone who studies film or someone who just enjoys a good movie or just yeah, someone wants to be entertained. I think like all three are just like, yeah, this is this is kind of it. You know, this is one of those films um, because that you know that's where I ended up. I'm like, yep, I can't deny how how much I'm enjoying this. <laughs> this is great. There you go, David. <laughs> I'm proud of you for that. What did uh, you watch I... it back to back two times in a row? What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like like the rest of us. <laughs> I would. I have never seen a movie back to back. I find that impossible to believe. You've never seen a single movie Who does back that? to back. No, you freaks. Do. We've we've all done it. Even yeah, as a kid, like the Muppet movie, you didn't watch back to back or something. Like, come on, man. Star Wars. Didn't... I mean, I mean, I I, I oh, can't recall. Oh. I, it's possible, and I was like, I'll oh, put it on again. I don't know, but you know, when you're like a three year old or a four year old, yeah, yeah, you're probably not wondering like what else is on. Jeez, oh, <laughs> Captain Hook over here. Listen, we're just all Peter Pans. We don't want to grow up. Uh, I listen. I like. I like stuff. True. I like. You know. I've. I've. I've watched. I've. There are definitely movies I've watched way too many times that I would think is even appropriate. But I don't watch them back to back. I don't know. I don't know. I just move on. It's, it's done I'm today. It. Today is done. Well, I'll watch it tomorrow. Well, there's we nothing have... wrong with that. If you, I, I would love. I want to. I want to meet the guy who watches the movie three times. So you're, you're probably talking to him right now. Yeah, I was going to say it's John and it's this movie. It's John and it's Marnie. I can literally, um, when we're done recording, just go watch it right right now. Like, yeah. What's that Alfred Hitchcock movie? Marnie? Marnie? That, uh, yeah. Marnie? Uh, that, that. I could see you probably watch that three times. Marnie? Well, well, I'm a big Marnie fan. Well, who, who's not a Marnie head right now? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, and that actually ties into this episode. Oh, shit. Really? Help yeah. me. Yeah, the um the map painter from that is the one who did the map painting for for the thing. He's the one that oh, created the spaceship. Get the hell out of here. It's all scripted. Yeah, he did the he did the birds and then he did that. And so he worked for Hitchcock and um he was old school Hollywood. He was kind of the best in the biz. Wow. Okay. What a small See, world. So- it's all connected. Everything's I connected. Marnie and this guy is on <laughs> Thing. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, what was his good. name? I forgot his name, but he's uh, real famous. I should have wrote it down. Um, yeah, he's the one that created. When you see that shot in the thing, when they look out and they see the the buried ship, mm-hmm. all that painting, all that matte painting was done by him. Oh wow! Boy, do I miss matte paintings in film now. Yeah, especially That's... when done well. Yeah, when when done well, you don't notice it, and and it it still adds that depth without feeling you know, taking you out of the movie, like sometimes, not all of them, but sometimes uh, all the, the CG does today's, yeah, today's sure. films. But um, we did have a good time. I had a, a backyard movie night a few, a number of years ago, and 
we did uh we screened the thing and then we went immediately into i think two rounds of the board game and it was a blast that's right yeah it was nothing but a good time that game oh my goodness yeah it's a fun game what a fun game it is it's an incredibly fun game it's It's also really hard to win as a human yes very very difficult but very difficult game to navigate as a human yeah uh, but have we'll, you played, we'll, have, yeah, we'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll come back to the Jumping game. Ahead. But um, the uh, God, I I have a feel like a, a long relationship with this movie. I didn't really know of it until I was about eleven, and it was the spring of nineteen ninety one. My friend Jeremy and I were at the time we would go down to the video store, which was like walking distance from his house, and we were ge- just getting into horror movies, so we would rent whatever the like strangest looking VHS cover was that's what we'd rent. And we just, we'd literally judge books by their covers. And, uh, uh, we picked the thing one day because of the amazing Drew Struzan poster. That is just a beautiful, beautiful image. And Oh my God, there it is. Uh, <laughs> EK is, is currently holding up a, a rare, extremely rare VHS copy of it. Where, where'd you get that? I found it thrifting earlier. Uh, I guess it would have been late last year. And it's the original MCA rainbow release with the stereo stripe on it. And it's in pristine condition. And I would say it was one of my top wants for a long, long time. And it's way out of my price range. So to find it for 99 cents in perfect shape was uh, <laughs> a unreal. rare treat. Yeah, unreal. And I watched it last night and it looks incredible. It's like... It's like brand new almost. So wow. it's a beauty. Yeah, that, that cover art, that poster design will pull anybody in. Yeah. Isn't it crazy that like that thing was produced like 30, 30 35 years ago or whatever? I mean, mm-hmm. when did that, that edition come out or whatever? And it's never been owned by anybody. It it bounced around. It was produced. It was put on a shelf. It was shipped somewhere. It, it lived in a store. And then it was that store couldn't sell it. So it went somewhere else. And it bounced around between all these like reseller things that all that. And it never, never found a home. It just had to keep going around and around and around. And then it <laughs> finally made it to a store that you happened to walk into to, and to you be. found it. And then it's now lovingly in your library. And as you said uh, earlier, that uh, it's in a pristine condition. You can, you can, it, it looked fantastic. So you you are the only one that's played that tape and it's existed for for decades isn't that yeah something? it's it's crazy it's kind of meant to be i feel like i willed it into existence but <laughs> there is something i i agree john about that artwork i was the same way when you see when you're browsing the aisles there is something about that weird absent faced burst coming out of a snowsuit that stands out right away from anything else around the colors those blues yeah. I mean, it's just beautiful design yeah, I mean, that's Drew Struzan is my favorite poster artist and partially because he he's able to capture the tone of the movie so well in, in his artwork. And whether it's The Thing or Back to the Future or Big Trouble in Little China, Better Off Dead, like there's, there's it goes up the some of the Star Wars movies, goes on and on. Like he somehow is able to get that tone across and and it, it sure sure worked with that with that poster well and then he, he he reused that design again i don't know if you've seen the movie the mist but there's some some book art 
design that's shown at the beginning of that movie that is based similarly off that same kind of kind of uh, silhouette in on on that poster. Yeah. Well, it makes sense for that movie too. Yeah. And if it works, you know, keep keep doing it. But uh, yeah, I saw it when I was eleven, and I was just like shocked. I remember just feeling sort of shell shocked from from that from the film, especially the the dog sequence. I was like, "Whoa! Like what? <laughs> what is happening?" And at that time, I was very sensitive about animal cruelty in, in films and had a hard time with it. And was like, "That is that's an intense scene," which we're going to talk about. But then I didn't really. Uh, I didn't really watch it again till college when it hit. I, I had picked up the VHS, but didn't really watch it. I did not have the copy that that EK has. It was just standard standard VHS. But uh, I bought the DVD, and I remember being home for Christmas break one year and just throwing it on. Like, all right, I'll give it another try, and falling completely in love with the movie, and so much so that I watched it again, back-to-back, <laughs> twice, right in a row. David's favorite way to watch a movie. Unbelievable. <laughs> but the second time, it was really like, I wanted to find the clues, and I really wanted to explore who was the thing, when did they, each of them, you know, the ones that we knew, when did they become the thing, like, where was the trail, of which there really isn't. It's sort of left almost up to your imagination of when some of those people who become things like when it actually happens i mean there's there's even red herrings in the movie there's that shot where the dog it's it's tracking with the dog down the hallway and it pans into a room and you see a man's shadow and he looks over his shoulder as the dog enters the room and then we fade out of that scene trying to figure out which person that was well the answer is it was none of the cast it was stuntman dick warlock (laughs) <laughs> who was in that scene. So Carpenter did that intentionally so that you wouldn't be able to figure out who that person was and that they were the thing. So brilliant, brilliant move. But it's not a cheat. So, kind of a cheat. Sort of, but he's allowed to do that. It's his movie. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, uh, what's, what's interesting as was, as I watched this was like, you can't, you can only trust what you see on screen. So when if, if there is not a character on the screen, then you don't know. You you literally don't know if the thing's got them or not. So it becomes very like it just becomes wildly out of control at a certain point. It's very controlled in the beginning. And then it's like, well, someone's not in this scene. So what could be happening to them, even if they're supposed to be doing something? Right. So it it like there's this little chaos that starts to 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 ferment and then it becomes greater and greater and then even if you're trying to track it you're like well but wait a minute wait a minute where is he and then wait wait a minute wait a minute though what about that and then you you then you learn new information which was intriguing like it's not supposed to be straightforward it's not supposed to you you can't you're not allowed to to figure it out like you don't know you can't track who's who and what's what like and that's intentional and it's frustrating like when you watch it the first or second time because you're like wait what did i miss yeah then you keep watching and you're like but it's not it's the point isn't for the audience to figure it out the once you realize that it's like okay well then it that because they would because they in the movie can't figure it out like you're one of them you're not an audience member you're one of them yeah in the in the film that's a great point that watching it it feels like you're just another guy in the you know at the outpost with them yeah 
So that that's what I think that's what elevates it to this thing of like, you know, you watch these like murder mystery movies or whatever, and you're just trying to like, oh, what clue did I miss or whatever. But like, and yeah, if you were in this kind of situation, you kind of do the same thing, but you can't trust what you don't see, you know. So, um, I think I think that's what like makes it execute so well. It's like you're never gonna you can't outsmart you can't have smart things that are going on that are beyond your control. And I just love that. <laughs> so like watching it this again, this, this time, like, Oh yeah. Now I really, really get it. You know, I, I don't know. So it's not, yeah. a, it's not a mystery movie. Yeah. It's, and, and those, those themes and, and that story structure has really kind of come along through the ages with the evolution of of this story and it just it's mastered so incredibly well by carpenter on a visual sense but all of those ideas really originated back with the original novella which was called who goes there written in 1938 by john w campbell and it was actually written for a a magazine called astounding science fiction has that have any of you guys read the uh the novella Nope, I've not. No, but I've read a couple from those old pulp magazines. So I, I'm a big fan of all the old 30s and 40s pulp magazines. And yeah. a lot of them have been digitized. So they're online and you can go and see the PDFs of all of them. So I bet you could actually find a PDF scan of that original one and, and read it in its true sense, you know, with the yeah. artwork that probably went with it and everything. So I wanted to, that was my intent was to, to check it out right before this, but you know, there's a lot to cram in and there is, um, this is a big one. Yeah. I, I haven't have, has anybody else? I I've, I've read it. I've read it. I read it twice in college. And then I, uh, I bought the, the extended version in 2019. That's called frozen hell. That was, uh, uh, Campbell's family, like decades later at way after he he's passed away, found like boxes of notes of his and they're literally sitting in their garage and going through it they realized there's all these other scenes and chapters that he had written for a full novel of of the story so they put it all back together and kind of because it was all like interwoven so they had to kind of reshuffle the whole story and then they released it as frozen hell uh, a few years ago which so i have i have the original novella and and frozen hell and uh, they're both really really fascinating really excellent science fiction uh writings and the carpenter did such an excellent job of of capturing that tone from the from the book that you know, in the book, I mean, there's there's differences for sure. Um, you know, the the look of the alien is is a little bit different, and that they can see this. You know, when they find it in the ice, it, they see this eye just like looking at them, and and, the, uh, and then you sort of get a point of view from the thing as it's starting starting to wake up and and thaw out, and what it's trying to do. And there's a lot more characters in the novella. It's 37 scientists instead of the 12 in the movie. So there's a lot of like names getting thrown at you and you're trying to, having seen the movie first, like you're trying to figure out the names are a little bit different, some of them. So you're trying to figure out who is exactly who in the movie. And, you know, there's, there's stuff that's been changed and combined for the film. But uh, essentially the theme is the same that 
um, McCready kind of steps to the forefront, not as much as in the film, but he, as it goes on, he is a little bit more of a lead, not like, not like Kurt Russell is, but just, just steps a little bit more forward than anybody else. But, um, you know, they have to stay in groups of four. They won't let themselves get in smaller groups than that uh, so that they can watch each other. But they really explore, you know, they're talking about, well, how do you know who's the thing? And do you know if you're the thing? And and that's not something that's really verbalized in the film, but but definitely a theme that's there. Do they describe the, the hair of anybody in the novella? <laughs> They they talk about McCready's flowing locks. Okay, because that's that's what I thought. You know, when that's... when Carpenter said he's really the right pick, I figured, well, that's probably because the hair in the original novella was glorious, and it's a whole chapter just yeah. about it. It's McCready in the mirror, just getting the yeah. hair ready for the day, <laughs> and that's brushing. What the, the, the thing yeah. was actually trying to replicate just his hair, not the body. That was yeah. so impressed. When you see that mullet, like you've got to yeah. you yeah. you've got to <laughs> want to be a part of it. Giving himself a blowout, just like, <laughs> all right, let's. Oh my God. But um, definitely, if uh, you're a fan of the film, track down either really the original one or or Frozen Hell, which is easy to get on Amazon. Uh, but yeah, the shape-shifting alien, that was all all there. Um, the, the story was then developed into a film in 1951 called The Thing from Another World. Now, now, who's seen that one out of, of you guys? Anyone seen it? I have. When I was a kid, yeah. I don't remember it, though, but I definitely remember seeing it as a kid. I watched it hours ago. Oh. You did? <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, I rented it on a streaming service and uh, was like, hey, let's. I've seen the, the 82 version enough. Let's check out the, the 51 version. It's interesting it was- how different it is. It is, yeah, the tone is completely different. It's not, I mean, it's good. It's like entertaining and it's it's well done, but like there's, I, I mean, in comparison, zero suspense. It's not nearly as, you know, kind of uh, dire in, in, its, in its storytelling, but yeah, it's entertaining. And there's similar to the novella, there are a number more characters in, the the 51 version than Mm -hmm. there are in the 82 version yeah it's it's much more of that early 50s style sci-fi film with the dialogue and you're getting a lot of actors literally cramming into one shot it's like they just keep piling on so everybody's in the frame over and over that's like one of the things that i stands out the most to me that that really like takes me out of that movie yeah but um for its day you know, it was a great science fiction film. It's different than the novella and definitely different than Carpenter's. Um, it was directed by Christian Nyby, produced by Howard Hawks, but it's really a Howard Hawks movie. Um, and the thing is, it's not about shape shifting. It's not taking over, you know, bodies and everything. It's James Arness, of all people, who is the, the lead in Gunsmoke and a legendary TV Western star, uh, is the thing prior to Gunsmoke, and and it's there. There's a couple of great scenes with him, but it's he's like a plant like kind of yeah creature that's just sort of trying to kill them, from right. what I remember. And yeah. 
And there is a female in it, so that's another difference from from the others. That there's a there's a lady. There's a lady, <laughs> uh, and it's yeah, it's it's a good film. It's worth watching, but it does not have the depth that the the other uh, versions have. It, it does it does kind of like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It is can parallel the McCarthyism that was going on and the the feeling of communism. Uh, and who, you know, who is a communist, who's going to sort of rat on each other and, and, and all of that. So it does parallel that, which is going on in, in society at the time. And, uh, so it's interesting there, but, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth watching for sure. Yeah. It's interesting too, because, um, when you hear John Carpenter talk about the difference between the book and the movie, he holds both in such high esteem. He's very careful when he talks about it because as, as you know, we've talked about him plenty of times now, he was a huge Howard Hawks fan. Like that's one of his precious idols. And so touching anything that Howard had done, he's treating very carefully, but he did want to go back to the original source material. And that's what he was saying is that even though the film is entertaining and he has great memories of it, you know, when he was younger, it was the actual idea of the creature in the book that was far more interesting, this idea of shape-shifting and taking on forms and stuff. So I think it was really smart that he tried to honor the, you know, the 51, but he also knew just as a good filmmaker that the real story was to go back to the original source. And I think that that's, that's pretty bold. I think a lot of people who are maybe not as confident as a filmmaker uh, will stay closer to the film adaptation when they don't really know the source material. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, in retrospect, thinking about this, had he have tried to just remake the 51, it, it wouldn't have worked. That's what made his remake so right. special. Yeah. And when this gets compared, and we'll talk about this at the end, I'm sure, of quintessential remakes, you know, what are the best remakes that have ever happened? The thing is always on there. And it's because the thing didn't try and remake the film the thing went back to the source right that's when you're going to strike gold if you do it right which funny enough is what they're talking about doing now they're talking about doing a film of who goes there with that title i believe and really do a straight like adaptation of the novel because there's still you know differences between carpenters it's it's yeah it's it's a brilliant adaptation of it but he does obviously change a fair amount of things uh, just to modernize it. But I think they want, so they're, they're developing a straight adaptation yeah. of the, of the novel, but we'll see that's, what happens with that's that. That's going to be tough. That's going to be a tough. Well, yeah, I, I, it, it's, to hike. it's really, it's, it's swimming upstream for sure. Because when you've got a film of this caliber, you know, look at all the, the, the attempts at redoing some of the great films uh, in in history, and and it rarely works. Right, I, I, I can't think of a time that really it has worked, <laughs> besides this. Well, you know, they did Dracula a thousand times. They did they did Wizard of Oz a thousand times, and really those movies, you know, there's only one or two iconic versions, right? Right. Like, so, right. so yeah, <clears throat> I mean, we probably kind of already have it, and so. If they're doing something else, at least it's an attempt, but yeah, you know, it, it the odds of it outweighing or you know, superseding what uh, we've already seen, it's, yeah, it's kind of tough, but hey, listen, go for it. <laughs> and, and in a way, the, the 1951 film, I think for a long time, fans sort of saw 
like what's happening in that is uh, that's the story of the Norwegian camp mm. that maybe that's sort of a prequel, even though it's not, you could, you could buy it as that. That's the setup. Cause you see what they find on the VHS ta- or the, the tapes that they find. You see them standing around that circle of the, of the ship, just like they do in the 51 film. So you could sort of see it being a prequel, but you know, that, that's up to you personally if you accept that. You but know, then there was. Well, there was well, a prequel. We'll yeah. get to that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll also I'll give this this new one a try because I think you know you can be a little generous saying that he went back to the source material, and I can too. But really, when we say that Carpenter went back to the source, it just means that he liked the idea of a shape shifting creature. That's about it. That's where it kind of really stops, where he really took off with it. Um, so I think that there is potential for another film, if they're staying true to the original novel, it wouldn't compete really in the same way with Carpenter's film because Carpenter did his own thing. And so there's the the possibility if done right, that this could be its own unique film. It wouldn't just be a, you know, a remake. Well, and I think, I think that for anybody who's a fan of the 82 version and seen it, you know, more than once, like, any new version that they make is going to be compared to that, but there's, you know, that was 82. There's a number of audience members who they haven't seen it. So it'll introduce this to uh, a whole new generation of people. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, maybe through that, they go back and, and, and if it is good, they'll go back and find the 82 version and, and see that, you know? And changing the name is really smart too, because then you're not competing. You're not doing Hmm. Halloween for the fourth time. uh, You're automatically setting yourself apart by changing the title too. Right. Yeah. That's sort of your way out too, of trying to be compared to the Carpenter film. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting, but I do think, I mean, it's hard to make a good movie just in general, right? One that like, you know, can, can withstand the test of time. And so, you know, I think that the 82 version is, you know, although not originally like uh, a fan favorite has continued to gain popularity and hit its peak and, you know, like now still has a cult following and, um, you know, so this one, it'll be hard for them to recapture that. Mm -hmm. I think no matter, no matter how good this next version ends up, end up being. It makes me think, you know, I, I realized not too long ago and it's been a long time to sort of realize that when I was a kid, as a child and watching say cartoons uh cartoons of the era but then also like bugs bunny and things like that before i was born right and all those the mary Mellies, all that stuff and how they amused me so much right but they were they were also referencing the things of the time like the so whether it's like you know pop culture jokes and things like that like things that phrases turns of phrase whether you know and then you know even as time went on and then it was like things that would be referenced in it's like saturday night live and all that like you know steve martin excuse me like that came out in other cartoons later and i thought well when i'm watching that cartoon i'm like that's where that's from and that's really amusing and so all that stuff it you know learning later that all these things i like grew up with that were from generations ago and are referencing other things you know, I always thought like all those things were so interesting and clever and funny. And the Simpsons did that too for, for many generations of, of viewers, like referencing so many films and, and pop culture things. 
and it's it works for what it is and you don't even need to know that that's referencing something and like it, and it, it realized like it's okay to like it's it, it's okay to for a new generation to like something or in, get into it without knowing well yeah but this is the source material and this was this was also made and this is that and like that's important to know but like to be honest like who cares like a lot of times you know i i mean it's uh, i just i think it's i think it's fascinating to like realize like all this stuff is so cyclical and it goes through different generations of like interpretation and all of that and you know so like is like so yeah people are gonna compare it to compare the new thing to the thing but like who goes there it's like it almost doesn't care as long as if that actually can work on its own and it has some sort of reference or whatever great but like you know i'm never i'm never going to be the one to be like but there's all this other stuff you should watch that because it's better and it existed before you were born and all of that <laughs> you know but like yeah. and you know it's it's just you know so i i kind of i find that re i realized that like even with you know you know back in the day of those you know warner brothers cartoons all that where it was in played in theaters and it was about the news of the day and it was about sort of the culture of the time and then when you're a kid like 20 years 30 years 40 years later and watching that and it's still kind of funny and you don't even know why it's funny it's just funny funny phrases funny funny sort of the musicality of 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 these turns of phrases and so it all kind of it's all related right like so isn't that kind of the thing like let let them keep remaking things or or interpreting the source material and we can always say like hey this exists but you know give give it your shot you know uh, i think that's intriguing to me yeah i, th I think reinterpret I, I like that phrase that you use reinterpreting the source material i that there's a di big difference between that and remaking the movie over and over and over yeah you oh know, yeah like the the number one that that comes to mind is the shining right so everybody loses their mind that somebody wanted to remake the shining well the remake of the shining keep your opinions to yourself right now but it wasn't a remake of the kubrick film it was right. a remake or it was going back to the source material of stephen king's novel and i think the same is true with the thing i think you absolutely have a point david is that people think the thing is john carpenter's movie and the thing is not john carpenter's movie the thing is a really cool version John Carpenter did of a 1930s novel. Mm -hmm. So a, a reinterpretation of that original novel, everybody has every right to try that. And sure. for it to immediately be compared to John Carpenter's 82 version is really unfair when you think about it. It's just that he did it so well. That's oh, yeah. the same reason why no right. matter how many times you try and redo The Shining, it's Kubrick's film. And mm -hmm. that's what people keep going back to so i think the thing kind of falls in that same category is it's the novel is one thing but it's really become in pop culture john carpenter's film not the original novel sure yeah i, I mean I, th I think most people just assume that that story is his they don't even know yeah. that there's a, a novella yeah or even a 51 film i mean right. that, that people probably today's audiences probably just don't know it I'm a, listen, I'm a big Steven Weber fan, but you know, he's no, he's <laughs> who no, isn't? He's no, uh, Jack Nicholson, I guess, but, but I it's enjoyed, a different, yeah. I, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the hell out of that miniseries, to be mm -hmm. honest. I really did. It was three nights. It was great. It was a lot of fun. And it was, I don't know, not fun, but you know, it was that thing. And it was a different story that, 
yeah. uh, compared to The Shining. I don't know. So it's like well, it, you know, it's yeah, it yeah. the same exact thing. And look, the people. This is a probably a better example because what you're saying is a new audience could find this new version of the thing and not really care that there was this masterpiece done 34, you know, whatever, 40 years ago. It's similar to it. I would say people mm -hmm. that are closer to my daughter's age would say, okay, well, cool that Tim Curry was in something that all of you older yeah. guys love, <laughs> but I actually like the new version and that's okay too. So that's exactly what, what, you know, could happen if, if this is put in the right hands and handled correctly. Yeah. Right. But I still, you know, the point that I was making about, I still think it offers the opportunity for these like younger, newer generations to be introduced to the older stuff as well, which I think mm -hmm. is great. You know, like, sure. like Tim Curry's it because yeah, we love that version, but nobody had, that had been out of public consciousness for some time. Right. And mm -hmm. then the yeah. new versions kind of brought that back and, and, you know, Everybody absolutely has their own opinion on on which version is better. I think they both are great and stand alone separately, but there's always going to be that soft spot for the old sure. you know, Tommy Lee Wallace version. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, a new version of of who goes there or whatever they're going to end up doing, if it, if it actually gets made, is just going to bring, you know, downloads and views to to Carpenter's film. It's just going to bring that boost that back up again as it's already had it's kind of cult status elevated. I wouldn't even say it's a cult film anymore because it's just so popular again that, um, yeah, that, yeah, it's just going to get more, more eyes on it. But, but let's talk about the development of the 82 film of Carpenter's film and kind of how that evolved and where it came from. And, uh, in the, in the mid seventies, uh, producers, David Foster and Lawrence Terman pitched it to, to universal, uh, Universal ended up getting the the rights to both the novella and the film. So not necessarily buying, that doesn't mean they bought the uh, the thing from another world, but they bought the rights to make another movie. To Toby Hooper was originally attached to direct, <laughs> which would have been, I, I can't even tell you how different the movie probably would have been had he had he been a part of it. It's always weird when you hear those stories, right? Like David Lynch doing, you know, Return of the Jedi or something like that. Like you always wonder what could have been. Yeah. Um, you know, he could have done a pretty good job, I would say. But at the same time, his hands were full because this is the same exact year as Poltergeist. Which which, which is, which, a, you know, well, we don't even need to go into that. But yeah, you know what I mean? Right, you know, right. It's like he's at least involved in something else right now. Yeah. And uh, I do think he could have he could have done a good job, but I would say that the things that make the 82 thing stand out are not just doing a good job as a director. It's having a style and a tone that is uniquely John Carpenter. And I think um, one thing we learned when we did our um, Assault on Precinct 13 is that he loves going back to those old you know, mm -hmm. films that he loves. He loves siege movies. He loves being isolated in a spot. And I think that this story is ripe for that. And if you have a director who thrives on uh, stories that need to be isolated and, and put in a hole, it's John Carpenter. It's what yeah. he does best. Whereas that's not Toby Hooper's thing. So I think that would have been lost, honestly. Yeah, I, I think isolation is a theme in not every one of Carpenter's great films, but a lot of them. 
Yeah. Yeah. And just uh, siege movies in general are, are kind of a thing. And yeah. you, know, you have to be kind of hold up and figure out how to get out and how to escape or, or some way. And yeah, it really does bring out the best in Carpenter's chops. And so I think plenty of directors could have handled this competently, but it would have lacked all of what makes this such an amazing film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Universal ended up not being too happy with, with the drafts of uh, the script that Toby Hooper was, was uh, putting out. So they, they kind of, stepped away from the project it goes on hold till 1979 when alien is released and the success of alien uh brings the project back up of course carpenter is already riding high from the success of halloween so it seems like a good time and a good marriage that maybe this is going to work for john carpenter so uh he he gets attached to the project and then by the time it's really active he's already coming off of the fog he's coming off escape from new york which which escape from new york was a hit wasn't it no not originally i mean yeah, it was a mild on. hit but yeah. i would say the theme of john carpenter's entire career is uh getting discovered later yeah. i don't know if there's any film that i can think about that that he did that really I mean, Halloween, I guess, had a, a pretty yeah, immediate yeah. reaction. But other than Halloween, the fog a little bit. Um, but Vampires? most of them, huh? Vampires. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah filmed right down the road. Um, I, I would say in general, uh, they were mixed reviews is what often gets associated with John Carpenter's films. Right. But Halloween was such an impactful film and so so such a huge movie that he could still even though the rest uh, wasn't weren't really hits yet, he could still ride that Halloween wave and, you know, getting really his first big budget film here. Yeah, well, and The Fog was, I mean, it was a That's solid true. movie yeah. that it wasn't panned at all. It just wasn't, it maybe didn't have the cultural tidal wave that Halloween did, but it was still, it was proving that he could back-to-back -back start to become a really competent director. Mm -hmm. He was a safe bet, I would say. Yeah. At this point, he was a safe bet. And we've actually covered all of those films, <laughs> which you can check out in the archives at reconcinimation.com. The Fog, not, Escape from New York. Vampires. Not Vampires. Not Vampires. <laughs> Assault on Precinct 13. It's all there. So um, Carpenter is, is a little bit worried, though, about trying to surpass his idol, Howard Hawks. And again, in our Assault on Precinct 13 episode, we talked a lot about his love of Hawks's films and and this, I mean, he even in Halloween, they're watching the thing from another world. Mm -hmm. And you see that beautiful logo that he actually redid. Yep. Like exactly uh in in Halloween. So he's a little bit worried about trying to to top him, but again, it's going back to the source material and really exploring the themes of uh, paranoia and isolation and really the, the shape-shifting side of it that really weren't that prevalent in, in the 51 film. So uh, a few writers kind of come in and write drafts and, and go, but but they settle with uh, Bill Lancaster, who was the son of Burt Lancaster and someone we spoke about uh, as he had written The Bad News Bears. Again, another <laughs> film in our archives. Um, so Carpenter was a fan of him. Uh, the folks at Universal were, were fans of his. 
and he really did he really wrote the bulk of the movie um and then especially in later drafts worked it out with carpenter to really find fine tune it but he's the one who had written the the norris monster scene where which is one of the greatest scenes in the film uh the whole blood serum test which does come from the the novella but really gets i mean they kind of just touch on it in there and we actually have to see it and how it understand how it works here. Um, he's the one who cut down all the scientists from 37 to 12, uh, and made McCready really the lead. So after he saw the headshot of Kurt Russell. Oh yeah. Oh, he's like this guy, this is <laughs> yeah. who's going to play. Forget it. Forget everybody yeah. else. Forget about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and 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 in watching this movie, other than McCready being a helicopter pilot, and then there being two doctors and then a radio guy. What do these guys do? What are they studying? What is their specialty? What? Are, who are they? What's the deal? They just seem like guys who hung out. They're just hanging out. Who's the microbiologist? Who is the you know? Well, that's got that's got to be who's the client. Who's the climatologist? Who's the Wilford Brimley? Norris. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. Or uh, like, yeah, Blair. I mean, look, I, you know, no matter what kind of science you do, you, you live in you live in a science center in Antarctica. You, you turn grubby and, and, and rough and, and all that. I don't know who are any of these people scientists. <laughs> like, I mean, they yeah. could all, they could all be scientists. I think you're stereotyping what a scientist looks like. Right I, now. I well, like I understand bit. that, but they're all just sort of like whatever. They're getting high and drinking and hanging out like that's you know. And two of them have to be doctors. Like fair enough. It is eighty two. Who knows what happens in Antarctica? And I suppose the point isn't it doesn't matter if one who the climatologist is like oh my god the weather of the from ten thousand years ago you know like what why would he tell during this story why is that important you you wouldn't hear that but it's funny to think that like these are all like probably like high level people who got advanced degrees in the sixties and seventies and then ended up in in Antarctica sure and then all died and then, oh boy think- what a what a rough time. I think a lot of science probably is pretty dirty and gritty, though. Well, yeah. and they've also they have other things to do. Like the you don't need like they have pilots, they have cooks, right, or a sure. cook. They have a cook. So, yeah, yeah. I don't um, know. I, it doesn't matter. It's just funny though. Oh, look, all these scientists. I, well, I, I can I can tell you right now who does what. Who does what? All right, so Blair is the biologist, <laughs> He's right? Got it. He's got it. Oh. Let's go. Well, who's, yeah, the, who's the building maintenance supervisor? Yeah, that's who, what I want to know. That one we don't see. He's, who he's, fixes other... the toilets? <laughs> um, you've got Norris is a geologist. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, you've got yeah. Nalls is the cook. Mm-hmm. And you've got the, the dog handler, which is Clark. <laughs> right. Right, yeah. you got. Yeah. You gotta he's got to. He's got to have another job than dog handler. I would hey, doing, so. He's doing take, more than handling the dog. You got to take care of the dogs. That's a full time job. Um, you got two two mechanics, and that is Palmer and Child. <laughs> okay, because you got to uh-huh. fix the stuff when it breaks oh, yeah. the science uh-huh. machines. Yeah. <laughs> That's technical. Um, there is legitimately one scientist in the whole <laughs> in the whole station. You've got uh I well, I think Palmer is also a pilot, right? Palmer and McCready are the pilots. Gary's the commander. And sure. who am I missing? Uh 
Wait, who's the one that was in the 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 theater call with him? Um, oh, uh, well, yeah. So th- he's all okay. Uh, yeah, Fuchs. Fuchs. Fuchs is a biologist, also. Yeah, he seems and like a really smart Copper guy. is the doctor. And what's the other? Uh, Bennings. I don't know what Bennings does. He's just there. He gets it, core samples to study. Yeah, I think that's what he does. That would be cool. Yeah. yeah. It, it, none of the hundred percent. None of this matters. And I'm just bringing it almost as this like, well, like really, who's the scientists here? Yeah. He cut, two... Carpenter cut a lot of the scientists out of the thirty-one. Uh, yeah. Because I because you've got two you got two cooks and maintenance workers, a couple of pilots. You're, you're talking. There's more people supporting a small amount of scientists versus like a lot of scientists mm-hmm. and like a, there's yeah. more support staff than there That's is a pretty harsh science. environment. There probably needs to be a pretty significant support group though. You would yeah. think there would be probably like maybe 36, 37 people there instead well, of, well, there uh, was in the novel. Oh, see, yeah. Yeah, there you go. And they do in the they novel, were on, they, 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 were they on do, holiday. they do get into when they introduce the, like each character, they, they do say like what they do. So uh, I want to a- revisit this when the new version comes out and, and then you get all 37 <laughs> oh characters to be like, maybe I didn't need to know what yeah, every single not. person did. Yeah, it's there's like, so many people. When you have to introduce all these people, it's like, but all right, this guy, he does this and he's an expert in this and she does this and she's an expert. And then it's like, okay, all right, never mind. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I don't think anyone does anything other than drink and smoke and uh, do autopsies. Yeah. <laughs> like that's it. Like, well, there's no oversight. You know, the big boss isn't coming to do daily checkups. Right. So. There's no yeah. internet. You have to send emails about your daily reports. So yeah, they haven't had contact in weeks. There's yeah. just computer chess and a, and and a billiards table. Computer chess, by the way, what like a thousand dollar machine that he throws uh, yeah. J and B in there just uh, for right. one game. Boy, McCready. voiced voiced by Adrian Barbeau also. Yeah. Huh. yeah, that's correct. Yeah, a perfectly voiced AI. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I go rook to knight four. <laughs> It would be like rook to night four, <laughs> right? Like wouldn't it? Damn be it! That? You missed a calling, David. <laughs> yeah, for real. Because it oh, wouldn't you be got a smooth, me there. It wouldn't be a smooth sentence. And like, I mean, that's a lot of that's a lot of moves. Yeah, to be pre-recorded. And, and they get all the high-end technology out there in Antarctica. And not only does he waste, does McCready like waste that machine? He wastes a whole drink on it too. Yeah. Yeah. Just drink the drink and maybe punch the machine. I don't yeah. know. Or, or walk that. away from the machine. Or just maybe play it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. But um yeah, in, in the original script, in Bill Lancaster's script, the the original ending had McCready and Childs, when they come together at the end, both realizing you realize both of them are the thing. And mm. it cuts to the next morning when a rescue helicopter lands and they just, you see them walking up, like thanking them for the rescue and that they make it off the island. And so Carpenter wanted a much more, I mean, that's a bleak ending, but I think he wanted a, a, you know, a, not a questionable ending, but um, an open-ended. Open-ended. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a great ending. Time. It, you you can only you can only assume that they both can't be things, so either neither of them are things or one of them is, and that's exciting. And there was another ending filmed. I mean, I don't know when you want to discuss that, but there let's, is a let's let's. There's a lot to talk about with that ending. So yeah, let's, it's let's pretty interesting. There. But there is there is more discussion. 
in that area. Oh yeah, there's there's a huge amount to talk. There's there's oh. a lot of uh, there's a lot of theories. But um, yeah, so this is Carpenter's first big budget film. He's got a fifteen million dollar budget, which is wow. uh, a huge amount more than what he had for Halloween, which was what four hundred thousand or something. And yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, so he's come a long way in about four years. And uh, but one uh, 1.5 million, I think, was the budget for the the makeup effects for Rob Bottin's uh, effects and well spent, which are yeah, yeah. fantastic. Well, I, I gotta say, well spent, unbelievably good. Like, yeah. oh my yeah. god, there's stuff that came out 15 years later than that that can't even match. There's stuff anything. now that doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it's just like holy crap. It's 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 design and execution. It, to such a perfection yeah i just wow like every time i watch this movie i'm like really they did this in 82 like yeah. holy shit like, yeah he got every penny out of that budget and i don't oh. think it was i don't think it was very easy apparently after after the shoot was done he went like almost directly to the hospital with with like exhaustion and double pneumonia and he's like got ulcers and all sorts of stuff but yeah but yeah he definitely uh well, made that budget work for some incredible effects and you believe it too i mean when you see you know when they when they when mccready and, and copper take the or wait do they I'm, I'm trying to remember how we get the the first like sample that blair is studying on the table right when he cuts it open and like peels the skin off and you see all the bone that he's mm -hmm. He's uh, looking at like it's so intricate that you could believe like that's a you know I don't, you don't even know what that is. It's not bone. It's not like tendon or ligament. It's just some kind of plasticky looking structure. But it, it's so detailed and intricate. It, it's yeah, amazing. or or like in the Norris scene where like I mean his head come like is detached and there's all this just like. Yeah, the weird goo. like bubbling goo and sacks yeah. and all this weird, just like visceral shit, just yeah. like everywhere. And you're just like, oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah and also, I would say, you know, given credit where credit's due, too, is I think that what makes the thing so iconic and such a cult status is uh, these special effects and this gore and stuff sure. like that. And what is insane to think about is he was 22 at the time rob was a, a kid mm -hmm. and he he had not done anything like this yet what? to this level he had done some stuff but nothing like this and in addition to that he's the one that came up with all the ideas of everything taking different forms and stuff like that like he came to carpenter with this idea so when we think about what makes the, <laughs> the thing some of the most iconic moments yeah. it's a 22 year old kid who's like Hey, Holy I got a brilliant idea. You're doing the thing. What if instead of making it one creature, we make it all these different versions that shape shifting in different forms and I'll figure out how to do all the effects. By the way, uh, did I mention I'm 22? Like it's <laughs> yeah. insane. Holy crap. Yeah, that's I, can now, that I can now legally have a beer. Yeah. To, yeah. Give, <laughs> to give somebody that much creative freedom on the biggest project you have ever done, uh, I mean, says volumes. And when you hear Carpenter talk about him, you know, Rob's abilities. Yeah, not everything went smooth. And we can talk about that later. But he also knew this guy, there was something about this guy that he could pull it off. And when you hear Rob talk about John, you know why this worked is because these two just were on the same wavelength. And this is the perfect 
time. It, it all came together in one glorious moment called the thing <laughs> where you have somebody willing to take as many risks as possible because they need to make a name for themselves. And then you have somebody else who's more seasoned who says, I need somebody to take risks because this needs to stand out and not be forgettable. And those two balanced each other perfectly. It's just, it really is, it's John Carpenter's film, but it's also really Rob Bottin's film too. I mean, this yeah. is his, this is his moment. This is going to be forever the film that he will always be linked to. Yeah. Yeah. And and on top of that, it's really a combination too with Dean Cundy's cinematography that Oh yeah. You know, Absolutely. he the way he lights all of these all the effects work it, it's really important that he doesn't overlight it because then we're going to see that it's you know that it's an effect and not feel like it's real and genuine uh, a genuine part of the story. So especially with things like the Blair monster and the whole Nora scene and, and Palmer and, you know, his head situation <laughs> that happens, but, uh, yeah. you know, you have to very carefully light those. So it doesn't, you know, doesn't feel fake. And, and so it was really the three of them working together too. But what's we... crazy is when you go back to it, uh, you hear him talk about lighting those scenes. It's because Rob was on him about doing less light. And so, <laughs> I, again, the influence that Rob had over this film, I think can't be, you know, overstated is mm -hmm. yes, you have this amazing cinematography, but he's also getting pointers on how to do his job from a 22 year old special effects artist saying, look, yeah. if you want my stuff to look good, you need to use less light. And the fact that he even listened to him instead of saying, you know, shut up and go sit in the corner until we call you says volumes about the team effort that went into this. Like they all just kind of believed in each other. And that sounds corny, but it really is true. Like yeah. I think that they trusted in the team and that's why this turned out the way it did. Yeah, I mean, Carpenter's team, you know, he used a lot of the same crew for his early films. And it's, you can feel that, like you said, that you can feel that teamwork and it's just going to help him. Just to, It's going to make it easier for the creative juices to flow. Where would we see Botine after this? Where would we? Is there more iconic things that he was involved with? Yeah, you could say so. Yeah, he, uh, he went on to do some big ones. Well, just to back up real quick, just if, oh, uh, sure. especially for your listeners, if they don't know how he got involved, is he was a massive fanboy of John Carpenter uh, and wanted to work with him. So when Carpenter was working on The Fog, he managed to weasel his way into getting a meeting and working a little bit on The Fog. So he, found a way to work with Carpenter wow. and in uh, in basically one year not only introduced himself but became the lead special effects artist for his next big movie but he went on to do things like Legend Witches of Eastwick a little film some of you may know called Robocop <laughs> I mean like Total he, Recall like, yeah, never he, heard just, of it. <laughs> he has a career um, yeah. but I would say even with all those amazing accomplishments Everybody, when you hear other people in the business, especially people like Stan Winston and stuff talk about him, they all go back to the thing and say, this is when this guy came out on his own. This was his coming out party of saying like, I am here, I am a force and you will well, remember my name after you watch the thing. And he, he true, couldn't he just, he just pushed the boundaries on this one. Yeah, he couldn't have come out any earlier. He would have been in elementary school. So... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's very bold. It's really, <laughs> I, it, it's amazing. It's pretty amazing. And when you hear him talk about the gags that they had to do, all the setups and stuff, like yeah. they were figuring it out on the spot. It's the classic 20 year old, you know, like 
sure I can do that. And then yeah. you're sitting there going, well, shit, like, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do it, but we'll do it. And they, and they did it. Yeah. And, and didn't he, at a certain point, he just walked away from the business too. Yeah. It does seem like he was riding high and then just gave himself a kind of a break, which was yeah. probably a smart thing to do. Yeah, I, I believe he stepped away entirely from the business. And I heard, this may not be true, but I heard he handles like high-end real estate now and that's his new career. And he doesn't, he does an occasional interview, but really doesn't do much. I think he did something for Game of Thrones though. Yeah, he has been involved in that. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure what. Re- more, more recently, but before that, like the last thing that he had really done was early 2000s. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think his days are long past of sleeping, you know, in the studio floor. Right. Waking yeah. up yeah. and going back to work. You know, yeah. I think those those days are long over. Well, and now we have a special guest. Come on in, uh, Rob Boutine. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> nice hair. We're out of mi- we're out of microphones though. So yeah, just so, kind of... <laughs> he's saying brilliant things though over just to the side. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so he had 1.5 million for his budget. Um, the movie originally was budgeted at about 12 and a half million. So quickly it, it skyrocketed. Larry Franco, who was one of Carpenter's regular producers, um, had to find ways to like bring the budget back down so they could actually make the film. They uh, they doubled the Norwegian camp. They shot it at the end of the film. They used the American camp to destroy it and make it the Norwegian camp instead of having two giant sets. Uh, they they just straight out, as we'll talk about, I'm sure they cut Nall's death scene. There was a big elaborate yeah. thing planned for that. And they were like, you know what? What if we just don't, what if we don't know? That's we even just, worse. We just kill him off screen, maybe. Yeah. But no. the thought of what happened to him is like completely haunting. That mm. you mm-hmm. see him walking into the shadow, you hear nothing, but you know yeah like he's been taken at a minimum uh and and Benning's death was in a big elaborate set and was a much bigger uh makeup effect and they just cut that down to something very simple that could be done outside no sets so right there trimming all that helped bring the numbers back down um, but let's let's talk a little bit about our friend who's about to celebrate his birthday. Uh, we're going to talk about Kurt Russell right now. Mm. So this is a huge movie for Kurt. I mean, he's coming off of Escape from New York and he's successfully shaken the child actor, um, you know, stigma that he had. He's gotten away from Disney's. We, we kind of talked about his whole career last year. Uh, but this one was a, the next step in being taken Seriously, I mean, you can't get a more serious role than than this, really. And of I course, would... with with those locks, you just it, it, success oh, was right there. You can't beat it. I, I think what's really stood out the last time I watched this was being aware of his versatility, because you know, coming off of Escape from New York, where Snake is this real cocky kind of character, he's he's like a comic book character almost. And I just associate that with, well, that's just Kurt Russell. But then when you watch his this subdued kind of serious tone in the thing and you realize they're back to back, I don't know if people maybe give him as much credit to as, as they do, because I, I think 
oftentimes you think of Kurt Russell as Kurt Russell, like, yep, it's Kurt Russell in a movie. Not to say he's as, you know, like Sean Connery, where he's just going to be Sean Connery no matter what. He is a, you know, he's, he's got some, some range, but I don't think it's as obvious. It's, it's more subtle. And I think it's the best example is this, you get escape from New York to the thing, the same lead actor, but this is not the same person Mm -hmm. at all. You're not just seeing Kurt Russell in another movie. And I think that that really goes a long way. It was a smart cast. I really do think this is a great performance because he's not over the top. He's not taking over the show. He's doing what's required of him and he's doing it really well. Yeah. And this was the third collaboration between Carpenter and Russell at this point. They did the the Elvis. Elvis, yeah, Yeah, Elvis TV film, which, right, don't you have a copy of that? I do. Yeah. It's, yep. a, it's a really good movie too. I, I highly recommend it. If you're a Kurt Russell fan, uh, as far as TV movies go, it's, it's a strong one. Yeah. And then escape from New York and then the thing, and they'd end up doing a total of five projects together. I believe they did mm-hmm. big trouble, little China took a long break, did escape from LA and have taken an even longer break, but they're still, they're still great friends and they do a lot of, appearances together and interviews together so uh just you know careers went different uh different directions but and i do think that kurt could have played uh the the lead role in they live but uh oh man yeah do we do we think that that role was meant for kurt and then uh, it had to have been he was it, it, it had to decided have been. not to i mean it, it rowdy was awesome i mean yeah. like he was great. He killed it. But yeah, Kurt. My my thought was always it was intended to be Kurt. Kurt at the time was, you know, his star was on the rise, was doing a lot of projects, probably not available after Big Trouble. And uh, I don't know. And maybe he wanted to just do more away from Carpenter, too, at the time. So sure. But I would love to see another and another reality where he stars in that movie and and uh, what the end result would have been. But um, I think the last real collaboration that was a potential, like a real potential for Kurt to come back on board with Carpenter would have been Ghost from Mars when it was intended to be the third installment of the Scape trilogy. I think that Kurt Russell was kind of supposed to be part of that. And because Escape from LA was such a flop, it was like, well, let's just scrap that and go a different direction. And then you get Ice Cube, you know, so yeah. which I'm not going to complain. I really, as a fan of, of John Carpenter, it's a fun watch, but it's it's no escape from New York, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could have seen him as the James Woods role in Vampires. Mm-hmm. And then were mm-hmm. they talking about Escape? Uh, wasn't there a th- like I heard there was one in development called Escape, escape, the, escape from, the World or something. Escape, escape from Earth. Earth or something. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Who knows? Maybe, but maybe that, one that, day. Yeah. That could have been the Mars one that, that got yeah. repurposed. Yep, yep. Maybe that was it. But, uh, you know, there were other actors in play here. So let's let's get into the rest of the cast. David's favorite segment of the show. Who's <laughs> in this movie? Uh, so other people that were up for McCready were Christopher Walken, Nick Ooh. Nolte, oh. Jeff Bridges, Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, the legendary, another icon of this show, Tom Atkins was hey. up for McGreedy. I think I... they did the right thing here. No offense to any of those actors, especially we. everyone knows we love Tom Atkins. 
But uh, I think that was the right choice going with Kurt. Yeah, no, I mean, Kurt, you know, Kurt always knocks it out of the park no matter what he does. And uh, yeah, those might be interesting choices, but clearly we have the best already. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of names that were up for roles in this that were, were almost cast. Uh, just, just to throw names out there, not saying who they were up for, but Brian Dennehy, Chris Christopherson, I could, I could, that would have been weird, but I could see, he looks like McCready. I could yeah. see that look, but, mm-hmm. uh, John Hurd, Ed Harris, Tom Berenger, Scott Glenn, Fred Ward, Peter Coyote, and Donald Pleasance was almost cast <laughs> as Blair. Wow. Wow. And would have been, except he was, he was on another project and not available. So uh, it would have been really cool to see him continue his carpenter relationship and play the Blair role. Yeah. They would have been great. You know, when talking about people who almost got these roles, this is, even though he is perfect for this role, I would say because it's there's a lot less uh, expected and demanded of him in this role, it's, like I said, it's a little bit more subdued. I think that this would have been the time where other people could have played this part and the film could have maybe still succeeded versus when we talk about somebody else getting the role of Snake Plitzkin or Jack Burton or something mm-hmm. like that, like these really over the top demanding roles where you have to be a character. Um, that's where it's going to be like, there's no way you could have gone any other direction but Kurt Russell. I'm glad they went with Kurt with the thing, but realistically, his character was not nearly as demanding as some of the other mm-hmm. roles he's done with John Carpenter that I'm sure that somebody, you know, somebody like, John Hurt or something like that, Christopherson even. Yeah, they could have pulled it off, but I don't think that it would have had that charm. And in the long run, we probably didn't know it at the time until after Big Trouble in Little China, part of what people love about John Carpenter's films is Kurt Russell. And so right. to not have him in this would have, you know, maybe had a long-term effect too. But I just wanted to throw that out there that, you know, when I think about somebody else getting the role for Snake, I'm like, no way, no yeah. way. But but this one's maybe not as as insane to think about somebody else getting yeah. a role. No, it's yeah, there, there's right. There's and there's not I mean all these characters because of the situation in the story, they're they're there's really kind of one note that they're all playing and that's mm-hmm. that suspense and paranoia feeling that they have to ride that that wave like there's no like comedy parts, there's no emotional drama to it, you know, that's it's survival really. So um, yeah, it's, I, I actually could see Nick Nolte at the time, 1981's, you know, Nick Nolte playing, playing McGrady. Oh yeah. Um, ch- the child's role almost went to Isaac Hayes and Bernie Casey, which would have been, uh, mm-hmm. Isaac Hayes, you know, would have made sense coming off Escape from New York. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, uh, you know, the cast we did get, I think they're all, I mean, I like so many of these actors and not all of them really, you know, this is maybe some of their biggest, their, their biggest movies, but, uh, um, great, great actors. You know, we've got Keith David making his, I think first movie appearance here. Oh, really? Cause he's yeah. got on to do a lot. Oh yeah. man. He's iconic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and he's still acting. He's still super active today, doing a lot of voiceovers and commercials now. And, uh, he's been in so many great movies and the fight scene and they live is just 
the 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 alley fist fight scene with Roddy Piper is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, All right, now a... rethink that scene if Kurt Russell was that character. I, it would have been a whole different level of uh, depth there. Well, you can tell Roddy helped choreograph that fight. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's very <laughs> yeah. much a wrestling fight. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yes. You know, um, so it would be yeah, been very different. But it, boy, it was great. That was a great fight. It's a great scene. <laughs> Uh, we've got Charles Hallahan as Norris, uh, another actor who's been in a number of Kurt Russell movies. He's in mm-hmm. Silkwood. He's in this. He's in Executive Decision, and I think there's one more where they appear together. That mm-hmm. uh, I don't. They. I, I, they. I'm assuming they had to have been friends or something. That that he kept you know showing up in Kurt's movies, but uh, a really good performance as, as Norris and just seems like a genuine sort of nice guy and then you see what happens to him <laughs> it's like awful yeah bad news um, uh donald moffat I've, I've thought he was great and clear in present danger and I, again so many movies through the 80s and 90s uh, he plays commander gary richard dysart as as copper the doctor with for some reason uh like a nose ring yeah <laughs> yeah like, like i didn't get 60 that year old man or whatever he's got the nose ring yeah like i want to know that him. guy's backstory yeah i want to yeah. watch the prequel that's about him <laughs> <laughs> oh my god uh wilford brimley as as blair now again he'd been acting through this at least the 70s but really doesn't become a, a, a name until the 80s and it's really you know this and what cocoon that that sort of make him that iconic Wolford Brimley, and then all the Quaker Oats commercials. Sure. <laughs> yeah, is it really this and and Cocoon? I feel like he was well, around not... in other stuff. He'd done a lot of TV stuff, right? Sure. Yeah, I think it was this old house, right? He he starred in for years, and this old house was it? This old house, not this old house. Um, that's the uh, repair nope, show. That's the Bob Vila show. Yeah, that Vila. is the Bob Vila show. <laughs> it, it's it, there's something similar to that. <laughs> Welcome to my house. Uh, uh, but yeah, I don't. Th- he's just another actor that had sort of a late start in his his at least his movie career, um, and then was the, in a million movies. The like he's a diabetes guy too, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. The diabetes. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I just always think of uh, John Goodman doing the skit um, yeah <laughs> he was he was also in china syndrome uh, right that's right he was in china syndrome yeah. yep yep check it out in yeah. the archives reconsideration <laughs> and, and then yeah he was in that tv show our house but that was after our house 86. come on yeah. I, I watched so that close. i watched like a couple episodes of that or a little bit wasn't was shannon doherty on that as a little I, kid i believe so let me yeah. see here. he was also he was also in the waltons oh yeah. Which was a popular TV show. Which was like a prequel to Our House. It probably, <laughs> it probably was. And then he quit that and went to a research station in Antarctica. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I forgot he was in Remo Williams. Yeah, the adventure begins and ends. And ends. <laughs> Unfortunately, damn it. Still waiting for the sequel. That's a movie. Uh, they, our friend Jay Blake Fischera covered it on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, but I really want to cover it here at, at some point oh, in time. So please, that'll be a good one with a great theme song. Um, TK Carter uh, as Nalls. You would know him from uh, Saved by the Bell or as we knew it, Good Morning Miss Bliss. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, what, are you, he, 
but other things too, right? Wait. Oh yeah, ski school. Right. Ski school. Yep. Yeah, big yeah. Fan. Don't you dare forget ski school. We've talked <laughs> about that here. I'm a big fan of ski school. Yeah. Um, Joel Polis, who plays Fuchs. I don't really. I know he's been in things, but uh, I don't really recognize him from much else. I think, but a great role here is as Fuchs, uh, a character who we don't really see exactly what happens to Fuchs, but I know they filmed multiple multiple uh fates for him oh really yeah there was there was uh various versions where they they don't find him at all they find the burned you know remains which is what's in the film now they also found him like like with a shovel through him kind of hung up against a door Hmm. Hmm. so either way it doesn't end well for few yes can 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 everyone clarify then so can does the thing let's say the thing is the dog right and then there's fuchs and they're in the same room does the dog become fuchs and then kill fuchs or does the dog or the thing the dog thing invade fuchs's body and become and is the thing but meaning the the thing is cloning itself and so so at at a certain point there's two of the same person right is that the idea is that is that because um, you, you don't see it or is it or is it eating the thing e- eating the the victim and becoming because i mean it does have right because if well, fuchs a, is burned up a mouth and, if yeah if if fuchs ends up dying the way he dies then then that means then fuchs there was a fuchs no no, no. i think what, what happens with fuchs is he he run, he hears something so he's working in the lab right yeah mccready comes by they have their dialogue. McCready leaves, and then he hears some somebody walk by or something go by, and he follows that. Unsure if it's McCready or not, he follows that that thing most likely out into the snow, and is well, I, I always assumed it to be the thing turned on him and was about to, you know, consume him. And he had the the uh, flare and lit himself on fire. Just a, so the either, thing, either by accident or intentional, he lit himself on fire, killing himself before the thing takes him. So the thing takes over a person. Yeah, and 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 and, and obviously it can spread and multiply. So there's other things that take over things well, over is it, people. Is it, is it right? like a what's the organism like a, a polarium or poly- you know what I'm talking about? It's like a flatworm, right? Where like if you cut it in half, it'll it'll grow and then it'll be like two flatworms will. Is it kind of like that where like it can just like spread into each of the well we see it's it like in... when when Norris's head falls off and it goes running running off, like <laughs> I mean, Norris's body is still doing a thing, the head's doing a thing, they're like yeah. two separate things going on. Right. So, well, this is a lot. All right. Let's get into it before we we, we'll come back to the rest of the cast. But, like, I mean, we don't have no, I mean, no, no, no. this is not the right place. I I apologize. (laughs) All right. Then, before we'll come right back to it, let's finish the cast. We've got Richard Masser, who plays Clark, uh, who also made uh, is uh, appears in it, which we were just talking about in so many movies, Shoot to Kill. Um, He actually, interestingly enough, turned down E.T. For this movie, yeah. which I think, I don't know if I'd say he regrets it, but it's definitely like, hmm, 
I mean, what could have been. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you want to play Elliot or the role he played, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a tough <laughs> choice. It's amazing he was going to play Elliot. Yeah, it's crazy. It <laughs> right. Uh, but it's funny that he was up for E.T., Peter Coyote was up for The Thing, and they ended swapped. up with Peter, Ga- yeah, Peter Coyote in, in E.T. Uh, David Clennon as Palmer, uh, who's, I think, you know, kind of almost the only comic relief in the movie for about five minutes, and then mm-hmm. it's just serious. But uh, Tom Thomas Waits, who we would know from mm. The Warriors, if anyone's seen that movie, uh, mm-hmm. as Windows. And uh, let's see, Peter Maloney as Bennings. And uh, Peter Maloney's been in uh, so many movies also. He was in Manhunter, uh, a short role in that. But uh, all great performances for what, uh, for what you know, the roles were here. But Right. Um, okay, so let's come back to what we we're just talking about. Let's talk about how the thing works and the sort of the questions that come along with it. So... And I think, you know, the Carpenter does his best to really answer those questions when we were with Blair as Blair's studying the thing and watching his amazingly advanced 1980-82 computer yeah. uh, situation. But, um, you know, you see the, the thing, the cell that is a thing, right, literally, like, grabs other cells and consumes them, basically, like, ingests them and then duplicates it but it's inside it's really the thing the original cell is no more so oh right right because even when they did the autopsy they saw the regular human organs inside that thing that was right there right right but like so okay so it takes you over and becomes you yeah it's- and we the only time we really see it is with is a quick shot when bennings is when, when windows comes back in the storage room and sees Bennings being consumed and you know he's just wrapped in tentacles and blood and uh, you you can't really tell what stage that's in is that the beginning or is that the end is that you know um it's no part I want to be no part yeah and then you know the question that comes up is what happens to the original you right once you've been consumed what's your do you have memories are you sort of trapped inside like then you're stuck inside the thing's body or are you just completely gone i don't know something that i really like about it too is this idea that it doesn't just replicate one thing and that's what it becomes it's kind of like terminator 2 where it can pick and choose once it's right. taken a form it can do that form again or shang sung from mortal Kombat. if we want right. to go there oh like yeah it, you know, depending on which code you put in, you can be any player. And but imagine if you screwed up the codes and you became four players at one time. That's what I really, really love about this design is that there are brief moments where you see it being more than one form that it's taken on already right. at the same time. That I think is really innovative for special effects and for storytelling and really terrifying when you think about it because as viewers we can really wrap our head around okay well it took over this guy now it looks like this guy but we can't really go well now he's kind of this crab blob with a dog head coming out of one spot and it's got the ability to take on the form once it's accepted it but it doesn't necessarily have to be only that form i I just think that's so cool that's such a 
so many really possibilities. Fascinating. Like, that that's sci-fi right there. Like that is yeah. that's so, what makes this film a really brilliant sci-fi movie is that it's not taking the easy way out conceptually. So do we see any forms that it takes in the movie that it may have taken before the movie started? We you know we don't I mean? really like pre we don't know. That's the thing. We don't know what, you know, we realize that this, the first thing is trapped in the ice for 20 million years, right? Right. Something like that. We don't know what it's seen and it's before it came to earth. So sure. we don't well, know. And it obviously it, disposed of the Norwegians as well. Right. And whatever was there. But, but that shit, you know, the, 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 the monstery kind of shapes that it is, is that it's normal, you know, or something similar to its normal shape, mm-hmm. or is that a, another being that it ingested from some other planet? Like, there's no way to answer that question. Yeah. The like spider legs or the crab yeah. legs. Like, yeah, exactly. Did it consume a crab or a spider at some point? Right. Or is, that its, is that its natural, you know, form? I think that's, what's really cool is it mixes all these things and it just becomes like body horror. It becomes like a Cronenberg film at yeah. this point yeah. where it's yeah. just oh, yeah. pure body horror. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's an, and just the thought of, I think what it, or my theory and many people's theories that, that you, you are no longer you. So it's a copy of you. So you're dead, but it's taken your memories and thoughts and sort of merged it with its own. Mm-hmm. So, it's like basically like copied you into itself. Yeah, it consumes yeah. you and then it can be you, right? Yeah. Like that's kind of but you're gone. So it's like body right. snatchers, but it's not a second body. It's it's just you. Right. Like you're you're taken over and replaced by but essentially using your original body kind right. of thing. But then when it splits is that two things or is that really one, you know, two bodies, but one sort of central mind? Uh, I mean that we can never know, right? No. And they do, they do touch on that in the, in the novella that it, it, once it splits, it is sort of separate beings because like there's, there's confrontations that they're all trying to figure it out. And they realize one thing has, uh, has killed another thing not realizing it was a thing, thinking it was a human. Oh, so they didn't even, in the novella, they didn't recognize each other? Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because I would so, think they would know. You would think, yeah. But like but, when the Norris, yeah. you know, splits into multiple things, you know, that's, are they two separate things? It seems like maybe Well, it seems like that they can, they can exist separately, but that they are maybe genetically the exact same thing because going back to this tapeworm idea or whatever i remember correctly reading up on that because it was weird too is that when it's cut in half it can be it can exist on its own but that if you study it the dna is identical meaning that it is not two separate beings they are moving independently but technically speaking it is absolutely the exact same creature it just now exists in two different forms. Right. That's in real life. This is the actual. Yeah, life. that's a real mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. So that's what I think when I watch the thing is I like, I think, you know, the head running off as a little spider creature while the body's spazzing out. Um, yeah, they are independently doing their own things. But if you were to take like a tissue sample and study it, they're the exact same creature. It's just now got two different versions of itself. Yeah. So you have to wonder, is the creature of the thing, 
is that some sort of creature or parasite that is on this round UFO alien ship that like an intelligent species like designed, built, manufactured, launched, figured out interstellar space or, you know, or is it actually or is the thing the actual creature that did all of those things? You know, is this just some sort of parasite? Like, you know, like, was there some species that came at that time, but was taken over by the thing or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. And then now it's just using, you know, it's like, well, because the thing's job is to continue to populate and spread. So is this an alien parasite from whatever planet 20 million years ago that took over an intelligent being and then you know, continue to spread like that's fascinating, right? Yeah. Like that, right. that's kind of neat. Like this is one of the reasons this movie is the gift that keeps there's on so much yeah. there to talk yeah. about. There's I can't really... imagine the thing designed a UFO, you know, a, an interstellar spaceship. Yeah, no, and, it, and it just seems like program. a hostile, you know, parasite that is out to yeah. devour, right? You no, know, but it also seems like it's incredibly self-aware and knows that it doesn't want to just live in an abandoned outpost in Antarctica, right. that it wants to. Yeah. find a new host and keep populating and moving yeah. so by any means necessary if that means taking over the pilot of a spacecraft and then crashing into another planet it's right. not going to go cool well i'm here now it's going to say well how do i get to the next place mm-hmm. and so it does seem to have some intelligence where it's not just consuming and killing and yeah. replicating but it's actually got motivation and intent yeah, yeah. well and just like what's his face was building this spaceship in the underground right like yeah blair blair was the blair thing was building the spaceship maybe because it took that information from its original like the host of that alien thing like building a spaceship you know i mean it could and and again it doesn't it could go either way i my if i were to guess i would say it's it's intelligent but it's not exactly a science-based intelligence but who knows i mean uh, i'm using my earth earth human being bias to this that science did not you know uh <laughs> determine like what it's it's goals in life so really fascinating stuff that you know alien like is it an alien race doing this or is it an alien parasite doing this and why is it better than all of those alien sequels we got in the last 10 years <laughs> Uh, there, there's so many more questions than there are answers but that's with the whole movie but that's kind of what the where the brilliance of the film is and and there's so much that we don't know or we don't see like blair the whole blair storyline that obviously blair is human when we first see him you would think that when he's studying it and we're watching him re you know see the computer screen is he has he been taken by the more i watch it i feel like blair is probably overtaken pretty quickly when he's got the uh the thing on the table and he's peeling it off he's touching it he's touching the parts that will like easily you know kind of like take over him when they're the rest of them are not around no gloves so no yeah i think he's got light gloves but yeah but uh but his notes say that it's it it happens on a cellular level so yeah the, the, the difference between a dog like throwing tentacles and to absorb you versus the cell so it's going to take a little more time for blair to be taken right. over yeah well and that's why where maybe the whole situation with blair is different that he's it is a slower transition for him and and he 
you know, when he's reading that computer readout about how fast it can take over society, maybe that's really the thing driving that. And that's what he, he's not scared by that. He's actually like, oh, good. This is how, if I can get out of here, this is how fast I can do it. Mm-hmm. And then the whole, when he goes crazy and starts dismantling the helicopters and, and uh, shoot, you know, shooting at everybody and going nuts in the, uh, the communications room, that maybe that is his plan to be isolated so that he can be by himself and figure out how to build this ship. And he'll, he can burrow out of that, you know, that, the cabin and, and work on his project while they're all dealing with the rest of the story. So, um, watching it now, like I always thought that he's human until he's in the cabin and then it finds a way in and he's cornered and it just gets him. But now when I watch it, I think he's been taken much, much earlier. We just don't see it. Yeah. So Hmm. I don't know. And there's, there's so (laughs) many other things like, um, so many ways to play it. Yeah. Like we really, when the movie opens, all we're seeing is two guys in a helicopter chasing a dog, shooting at it. Of course, your sympathies are with that dog. That's exactly where Carpenter puts you. You don't know anything about the Norwegian camp or what's happened there. And by the time we see it, again, more questions than answered. How can there be somebody sitting here who slit his own throat? And then immediately froze to death, you know, mm-hmm. um, and like what was so horrible that would drive somebody to do that. And then the clues of the size of the thing and the chunk of ice and that's now empty. And, um, you know, we, we don't get those answered in this film. We do later on, which we'll talk about, but, uh, you know, and how did the dog become, uh, become a thing? We don't, you know, we don't, see any of that it's just like this is where it starts right whatever we see like we have no information prior to that um the uh the the dog's act the dog's name was jed who played played uh, <laughs> uh a, an amazing performance should have won an oscar yeah <laughs> uh but the the scene in the kennel is sort of your first big reveal uh really it is that that's the reveal of of what is truly going on here and the horrific situation that they're all in and and it's symbolic you know for the rest of the film that those dogs represent all of the humans who are in this cage being the outpost and and antarctica in general uh cornered by by this creature yeah and what a performance yeah i uh i read in an interview they asked the dogs afterwards, uh, you know, what what were the conditions like to film? And you know what their response was? Rough. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Can't, you can't top that one. <laughs> I'm just I'm just stating the interview that I read. Yeah. And that's our show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That's awesome. <laughs> That is a that is a tough scene to to watch for any any animal lover that to see a bunch of dogs get tortured, uh, even animatronic or not was 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 a tough one to sit through. Well, in that first opening, you know, scene too that's really amazing is um, that was done by Stan Winston. So mm-hmm. you know, going back to this idea, you know, Rob was young and he took on a lot and he maybe bit off way more than he could chew. So they did contact Stan, the legendary Stan Winston and said, can you just come in and like relieve us a little bit? And so 
Stan was in charge of that scene and gives full credit to Rob. You know, he says, this is Rob's film. We were happy to be a part of it, but that scene is really awesome. I mean, it is, yeah. it is what a way to set the tone of yeah. you know, what you're in for. So, yeah. I mean, I, 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 that the intensity of it is like at an 12, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's insane. And then the, 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 so after the thing has taken a few of the dogs and then a, a couple of the dogs escape, I mean, you could just, you feel so sad for them. They're so desperate. They're just chewing the metal wire off to just yeah. make a hole, you know, um, the you see it becomes something else and it's almost its head becomes almost like a flower type thing or like a like a opening of a venus flytrap and just goes rocketing towards towards childs i think right isn't it like mm -hmm. headed straight at him and then mccready comes in with the flamethrower but you know th then then it's finally like whoa like what the oh, yeah. hell is this? You know, and, and the going back to that brilliance of, of Rob's kind of creativity with these creatures, instead of just going the basic route, I learned this when I was uh, watching the making of, he said that if you were to freeze frame that flower-like creature that blossoms out of that form when it opens up and comes at them right before they hit it, uh, he said what that actually is, is a bunch of dog tongues with dog teeth that basically the creature is in the middle of trying to figure out the form of the dogs. And mm. so it looks like a flower, but I mean, how surreal is that? That's like yeah. a, a HR Giger or a Salvador Dali painting, you know, like it's these weird forms. I love that because had he have not explained that in the making of, I would have never put that together but the thought that this creative dude was like, how about it's got this weird flower thing, but the flowers are made out of dog tongues and it's got dog teeth and Carpenter's like, hell yeah, that's a Approved. great idea. It's like, and it's a split second decision. You know, it, it only lasts a split second, but that's the, you know, when we talk about new, new readings on this and being able to revisit it and find new things, it's like not just the story, not just the character acting, not just the drama, but even in the effects alone, you can find little tiny things that you didn't see maybe the last time you saw it that keep pointing to how brilliant and how innovative and forward thinking this film really was. There's a reason why it found an audience later. They keep saying that it's because you needed it on home video. You needed to be able to pause it and go, what the hell came out of that creature? Yeah. Are those dog tongues? You know, like you couldn't do that in the theater. That's why this film was just too wild. It's it's just out there and uh, you needed time to digest it. Yeah. And and it's really it's really made to rewatch. You know, like like we were talking about earlier that it's there's so much going on that you need to sort of go back and track what's happening and exactly like what's happening in these scenes but what might be happening elsewhere that we're not seeing. Uh but this is where after the dog scene, that's really where, where they see it. Everybody sees that it is a monster. It is a, you know, that is now loose in the building and they, uh, the paranoia sets in. So your themes of mistrust and betrayal and paranoia are prevalent starting right here when now they're like, okay, so who is dealing with the dogs? Clark you know, immediately is the like number one suspect right there. 
but kind of forgetting that Blair also has, you know, a carcass that he's studying and maybe, maybe uh, Fuchs is also dealing with it as well, like hands on. So already there's like multiple people that could be, you know, could be, could be things. So, um, Benning's death scene is, uh, you know, brief, but that, that shot of him turning to the camera with the hand that's been, you know, changed and he just emits that, that scream. Uh, like that's chilling. Like that, that's, mm-hmm. that's a moment that got me, but apparently not Kurt Russell. Cause, uh, he just kicks over the, the gasoline and lights him on fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so it's so it's so horrifying because you yeah like the, with if not for those hands you know give it another five minutes no yeah. one would know it, it right who he right is, you know like and it's just uh yeah it, and they're all like encircling him just like the way they all uh, the other camp encircled the, the ufo like they're just they see this thing and it's it's frightening like that and this is someone they've been living with for so long like that's you know, it looks just like him and then it turns into this thing because it's not it's not like this, like, you know, scrubbed version. It, it's him, you know, like his his hairline his right. It, you know, his, it's a perfect du- duplication. Yeah. So I was just like, that's ter- like and, and I think I think us as an audience to getting to see that if you like could apply that to your own, you know, your own life of like, what if like, you know, the person people you know or whatever like this happened that'd be terrifying like just and not 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 like body snatchers way this is different this is like a whole other like and you know this movie plays a little bit differently now post covid too that that um you know like the way that covid worked or works is is that you know you don't know who has it you're in a room with people like mm-hmm. one or two or three people have it you don't know who does there's no way to tell until it's too late um and you know it's like what are you going to do how are you going to trust anybody how can you start socializing of course we've seen it sort of calm down a little bit since then but uh in the beginning especially like I kept thinking about this movie a lot as that was yeah. was going Who's on. Infected, the paranoia is real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. It's uh, so even again, like we talked about it. It does, that's why a movie like this will stand the test of time because it'll fit other things that are going on in in each era. You know, here it was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic of not knowing who has a deadly secret in the room that that maybe they don't even know uh and then now you know it's COVID, and who knows what else but and before was mccarthyism and in the 50s and uh so there's it seems to keep a relevance in that way but um there's a lot of like trick cinematography that that carpenter's doing in this movie that sets up things later on there's there's certain shots where um, you know, Kurt Russell sitting close to the camera and the, but the foreground or the, the background is in focus. They're using a split diopter lens, uh, like all over the place in this movie. And, and it, that's a lens that Brian De Palma used all the time in so many of his movies, just ad nauseum here. It's used much more selectively and effectively that, uh, you know, it's setting up setting up things like there's there's shots where in the blood serum test where where we see kurt russell holding the the serum and we see his hand there 
and we see this the shot we cut away we cut back to the same shot and then that's where uh the the blood sort of erupts from there but it's sort of setting it up like normal shot but the next time we see it some stuff's gonna happen yeah so just that's freaky i love that yeah well it's Um, such a great tension builder too like that 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 whole sequence of all that and then you know and it's not like oh it happens at the end of it they still have to test people after right. <laughs> after this right. exciting moment you know like, yeah well before no, we even it just get... adds chaos to the situation right yeah, because it's right. like now you've got people who are tied up that you don't know whether or not they're infected or not at that point but they're they don't they're playing as if or they don't know if they're infected and they're terrified of the situation i mean it's yeah it's great it's another one of the many iconic kind of moments in this movie if well, not the most iconic yeah well there's a couple i mean they they you know for the next kind of chunk of the movie it's really a lot of it is about you know who can you trust and make, like nobody trusts clark hubba, but they're hubba, also, hubba. They're who also, do you trust yeah exactly sorry, <laughs> sorry. but sorry. uh mccready's trying to sort of step forward as the leader because gary the commander clearly is not doesn't seem willing to really lead the charge there and you know they're all kind of pointing fingers at each other and then to the point where mccready kills clark out of really self-defense but is mccready the thing did he just kill somebody right in front of everybody else Uh, you know was clark the thing who knows so and then people start to mistrust mccready and nulls you know leaves him out in the winter storm to die because he thinks McCready's the thing. And while that's happening, we have the great shot of, of, of Kurt in the, you know, in the storeroom, like frozen holding dynamite and the blowtorch. Uh, <laughs> and like, that's a brilliantly lit shot with like, you know, red and blue lighting on either side of his face. And it's, we don't know, like, we're like, could he be the thing? Is it sort of good and evil battle there? But then that leads to the Norris scene which is one of the greatest special effects scenes. That moment where Norris is having a heart attack, disrupting all this mistrust that they go into like EMT mode. And as uh, you know, Copper does the defibrillator and then goes to do it again. So again, you're set up to think nothing's gonna happen and boom, like (laughs) chest opens up, yeah, like become teeth and chops off Copper's arms like, amazing and then you're in insanity like it's just pure insanity from then on right so copper's out clark is out norris clearly is out but then the head as they're like attacking the body the head escapes and another great shot of (laughs) of of, uh palmer and and, uh and mccready as they like notice it kind of (laughs) walking by it's just genius just like, like absurd hell? And, uh, cr- just crazy moment but um and then that leads to the the blood serum test which right. is you know the most intense scene of they're all like you guys were just saying they're all, they're all tied up we don't know at this point who is and who isn't the thing but and, and this idea was in the novella about testing the blood and it totally you know for the world of the story makes complete sense what else are you going to do so, mm-hmm. you know, one by one, they're testing everybody and like everybody's coming up human. So it's right at the point that you are, you Let, know, think you guard this, down a little bit. Yeah. Then, then boom, that blood just fires off 
and another, I mean that, like, that's such an awesome I like I think that that is a great I also like piece of this right like the fact that the blood itself reacts and tries uh-huh. to escape I mean this entire movie is just about everything trying to survive even the blood in the dish is yeah. you know I mean it's I I think it just works on so many different levels yeah and and the so we as we see Palmer become the next thing that uh, that shot of his face as his eyes are like expanding and his head's like sort of blowing up is I mean that's if I'm if I'm Gary and I'm tied up right next to this guy like <laughs> oh my god uh, and then you know he escapes and gets windows and and McCready chases him out in the snow throws the dynamite blows him up. But if you watch that shot, uh, that's Kurt Russell really out there. And that explosion was like a little bit too too big. And you see Kurt get blown back into the building. And that's really Kurt. Like he got, I think he got a concussion and like he was, he was messed up from that. He goes, if, and you really have to look for it. You can see him just fly backwards and boom, right into the door. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. Movie making. <laughs> yeah. But that's that scene, the blood serum scene is just a classic, you know, science fiction horror, you know, intensity that that's it's perfectly done. Agreed. I yeah, I I, I love that tension. That's the thing. Like, there's there uh, the intensity and and um, sort of the mystery of it all, like. And the it's just a perfect ebb and flow to get you to those climaxes, you know. Like you're just, it's not like oh, we're just waiting for the next big scare or the next big moment, you know. It's not like a like a just a, a horror film for being horror. Like you know, it's there's there's so many layers to this of like unlocking this mystery, but also like what's really going on, and then also who can trust who, and uh, and. and it doesn't try to build to like one big head. It just continues to like give you little uh, avenues and then these things happen. And now, all right, now they have to pick up the pieces and go to the next thing and try to figure out what's next. You know, it's just like a, it's a, it, it, it's uh you know, so it's just such a well done script and well, and just a well done story that it's, it's not about like a to B to C and it's mm-hmm. over, you know, um, so I just like, I think that's what it really gets me. Like for, you know, uh, yeah, I think I, I, I enjoy this a lot. I wouldn't, I wouldn't probably pop it in any, you know, unless I had to, but I, boy, do I like it. <laughs> like every time like, I've watched it three, four or five times. I don't know. That's a lot um, for you. It's a lot for me. Uh, and certainly never twice in a ro- in a single day in, in a row, uh, Never, never. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I, I could watch back. it twice in a row and then play the board game. Like, oh my god! I, yeah, that's intense. But uh, yeah, no, good. To, I, I I like to just continue like as we're talking, just come in and be like, by the way, this is why I like this, and this is why it works. You know, <laughs> as though somehow my uh, my uh, you know my uh, what do you call it uh, endorsement of it um, makes it any better. But I just I think I I continue to get continually get surprised by it and i can see ikea ek as you say like re like every viewing of it is gives you something more to do you know and and there's uh, yeah i just uh, so even this last time to watch it it's not like oh i really enjoyed that there were still more things i was engaged on every, every uh, throughout the entire film yeah I, you know what's something that's interesting about this too is 
the relatability, like why I think it resonates years and years later is because it's very restrained in how sci-fi it goes. I think the mark of a really great sci-fi film is you have to be just believable enough with the with the story and the technology to make the viewer go, well, this is real, but also, yeah, that could happen. And it's not overblown. There's not people, you know, being transported into a spaceship and flying off. Yes, yeah, it's, it's implied that there's that technology, but we're not having to see that. What we're seeing is this weird organism kind of morphing and stuff. And so it's it's a great balancing act. This whole film is a great balancing act. And, and what I think is really kind of amazing is how safe it plays it while still pushing the boundaries so much. So why another reason why I think that this still continues to resonate and find a new audience is that the story isn't asking so much of its viewers that it's unbelievable and then it dates itself immediately. And you go, oh gosh, you know, the, that special effect was like so 1982. It's very like subtle with how much sci-fi is introduced. It's just believable enough. But then it's also on the practical level of practical effects, breaking ground in what is possible for special effects and movies. So it's like story-wise, it's safe. Effects-wise, it's really pushing the boundaries. Mm -hmm. And it's like this total package. Because I feel like usually criticisms with films are, oh, well, it was, you know, it was Avatar. It was like this amazing visual spectacle but maybe the maybe the story itself wasn't resonating with everybody or it's just a drama and there's it needed more blood or it needed more action or it needed more flames this one has got like this beautiful uh sampling of everything going back to right what we said at the beginning is there's something in this for everyone but what i would say is that none of the things it offers is too much it's just the right amount it's mm. like it's like the Goldilocks movie, you know? I know I know we're like really heaping praise on it, but it's true when you think about it. How can you have a film like be so innovative with the special effects, but yet still be so believable? <laughs> like mm, how does that right. how does that reconcile with each other? And it's because the effects are still within the realm of possibility. That's great sci-fi. <sighs> right. Well, and like, you know, and it's still of that era where you're not using computer assistance you know mm -hmm. like it's like watch ghostbusters like you know ghostbusters is cool and stuff but when they go a little bit beyond the practical it gets a little you know it doesn't look exactly great you know it looks a little worldly not that you know it's, a, it's not a straight comparison but it is that sort of thing of like they're still in you know so with Botine, like innovating in a practical sense and keeping it grounded and real like yeah like that this that's a real difference and from and it's not hard sci-fi i mean you can look at alien like that that's almost kind of hard sci-fi just the yeah. design of it all right like you know without using techno babble like that you would get in like a star trek or something but like uh or or you know just in, insane like sci-fi stories but um you know so there's that difference of of yeah that subtlety of what we're dealing with it, it's it's a full sci-fi movie but yeah the how restrained it is really just uh it should allow almost anybody to to walk in and enjoy it and right yeah and i would say we'll we'll probably talk about this more when we get to the end scene but uh, there's a moment in this film where it could have kind of gone out of um restraint and gone a little to 1982 and it could have ruined the entire movie 
had they have gone that avenue. But to his credit, John Carpenter said, thanks for trying that. It's not right for the film. And when we get to that scene, uh, even though I would have loved it, it would have ruined the movie and it would have made it so dated that it would have lost its audience after 19, you know, 90. It would have been like, oh gosh, another 80s film trying that. So that's another instance where this film is just so careful to, to be innovative, but not go too far. And that's why we can still talk about it as though uh, it's a great movie today as it was in 1982. That just, man, it's, uh, it's gotta be challenging as a director to say, I need to make my mark. I need to give the audience something they've never seen, but I also need to give the audience something they, they need to see without challenging them too much. And right. uh, this is, man, this is a really good moment because we, as we see in Carpenter's later films, sometimes he does, he goes a little, little too far and he yeah. should have trusted his gut and said, maybe I should have cut that scene uh, because one one bad scene in a great movie can kind of spoil it, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know this almost had it but didn't. Luckily, yeah, yeah. less is more. Yep. Yeah, and and that's that's really the thing with early Carpenter. Less is more was was really working for him back then. Right. But uh, as the story goes on, pretty quickly we're really only down to five characters one of which we know is a thing which is blair and then you've got mccready gary Knowles, and childs childs for some reason they're like well we all need to stay together but childs you're good you can just go watch this room by yourself <laughs> <laughs> you're fine um and that once they realize that that blair has been building a spaceship and is trying to get out they're kind of resigned to the fact that they're they're not going to make it out of there alive. It, it's that now it's about stopping that thing and uh, either killing it or just keeping it in the ice. Uh, so they're they're blowing up everything. They're blowing up the whole outpost. Uh, Childs is now gone. We, we another shot that we we cut back to the same shot again, and where Childs was guarding the doors open and he's gone. Uh, we we see Gary and, and Nalls and McCready planting dynamite all over this one. I'm not sure what room that is. It's like a generator room and poor Gary, you know, is off further away from the others when Blair pops up and that just putting his hand like into Gary's face, like another brutal, awful way to die. (laughs) And he can't even scream like he's screaming, but it's just muffled. Mm-hmm. Uh, another great effect there and then that's where we see like we talked about earlier Nalls, who hears this going on with Gary walks over and then we just see nothing it's just less is more so the thought of what happens to Nalls is almost worse than anything we could have seen and then we have the big confrontation between McCready and the Blair monster popping out from underground and this giant monstrosity who's like half Blair half dog you know, part thing, and we, I don't know what else. Like, uh, but uh, you know, McCready, we don't get a big show, really a long showdown. McCready sets off the bombs; the whole base is blowing up, and then we come to our our ending, where which is one of the greatest endings I've ever seen in in film. That because you're left That's with a so bold much statement, right? It there. is, but you're left with so much emotion and so much like like what happens next. McCready is 
clearly exhausted and the base is on fire, but that's only going to last so long. He's got his bottle of whiskey with him and he's basically going to sit down until he dies and child shows back up and they just sit together and pass the bottle to each other. And the question we're left with is who's the thing is, is the person the next to you. The thing yeah. is McCready. The thing has he been taken over? Did the Blair monster get him and that we didn't see did uh, is child's the thing or either or both of them the thing. So there's clues. There's little clues in that scene where now this is all uh, theory and I, I, I haven't myself seen Carpenter confirm it one way or the other. I've heard that he has. There's a, a thought that we see breath coming out of McCready. We don't see any breath coming out of Childs. Mm. Interesting. If you watch really? it back, there's no cold, you know, breath coming out of child's mouth. Also, and this may have been why copper had a nose ring that when it duplicates you, it can't duplicate things like jewelry and yeah, metal. Oh, yeah. So anything that's not organic. Right. So child's had an earring in the end. There's no earring. Really? Oh, interesting. But how do, but how do, I mean, does he just put on clothes after that? Because there's like metal zippers and stuff. And sure. And yeah. Yeah. Buttons. Well, and, right. Like, and isn't it, aren't they taking over the body essentially anyway? Sure. sure. So there's definitely uh, like holes uh, in those theories, but yeah. it's something to think about that. Um, so, you know, the, the, a lot of people think that Childs is the thing. Kurt Russell's or, or McCready is not. What happens next? Does Childs. What's the point from the thing's point of view? It now knows it's not going to get out of there. What's the point of killing McCready? Is it just time to just settle back into the ice and wait? Maybe it can survive long enough to arrest until a rescue team gets there. But uh, well, I mean, we, if it came from the spaceship, it's been surviving out there for a long time anyway. So, right, well, it was frozen. So, well, it was frozen until the Norwegians. Right. On Earth. But it can but, it'll freeze again until somebody right. else. Knows. Cor yeah. Correct. Yeah. It could freeze for another million years. Who knows? It'll get its it's I'll give it a season. Give it a the breath thing <laughs> is the breath thing is interesting. I uh but I like, want to go check that out. I have yeah. no see have Brent, no we're gonna watch it. We're gonna watch it again when we're done recording. Absolutely, back to back. <laughs> yeah. Watch twice. It twice. <laughs> Maybe three times till the sun comes up. Guys. Yeah. Okay, watch something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, EK, what? So what's what's this? What was the scene that you're talking about that could have ruined? Oh it? yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, this really. And um, I was watching it with my wife Mariah last night too, and we we both agreed like this. As as much as it would have been cool, it would have ruined it. Is that final showdown when it comes up through the through the bottom and it's this weird multiple formed creature, this giant creature. It was supposed to be a huge spectacle right and it was supposed to be massive and so what had happened is uh rob had a friend who was this really well you know respected stop motion animation guy his name was randy cook i believe and he called him in and said here's what we need is we need this creature to be able to move around and do all this cool stuff and you can see the footage it's really pretty impressive but it's uh, if you're a friend, you know, a fan of Ray Harryhausen or something, you're going to love it uh, is 
they do an animated sequence, stop motion animation of this creature moving around. And they built an entire miniature set of this whole final scene. And it is unbelievable how beautiful it is, like down to the tiny little lanterns and everything like it is impeccable. So the woman, I forgot her name, but the woman who built the miniature at the beginning of the spaceship, she's the one that helped with this also. Mm -hmm. And all this footage is there. You can see them building it. And uh, why I am, why I, why I, this strikes a chord with me is when I was a child, uh, Clash of the Titans was one of my favorite movies. Yes. And so was Escape from New York and both in, involved miniatures. And that's what I wanted to do with my life. Like when I was a kid and my parents would say, what do you want to do? I wanted to build miniatures for movies and I wanted to be a stop motion animator. So even though I would have not had a career very long after that, uh, because of what changed, anytime I see stop motion animation, I'm, I'm nostalgic and I love it. So the thought of there being stop motion in this is cool. However, when you see the final product and you can see it, um, it's cool, but it looks like early 80s stop motion animation, yeah, which is so out of place with this film. And as much as I love that style of art, it does not have any place in this film. And they they went all the way through with it, this painstaking miniature all the scenes and everything and Carpenter at the, you know, when he saw it said, it's cool, but uh, we're not going to use it. And he cut that all out for those artists. That's a, a bold thing to do, but I, I can guarantee you had he have kept even a millisecond of that footage in there, it would have dated this film so bad that uh, I think it would have kind of tarnished the legacy yeah, and the right. rewatchability. So it's weird to think about how just a split second moment could really change an entire film's legacy, but it's true. It went from being a cliche 80s special effects movie to being this kind of long lasting, yeah. you know, brilliant piece of sci-fi because yeah. of that moment. Right at the I climax think, too. Yeah. I think the lady you're talking about, her name is Susan Turner. Yeah. Who did it. And, uh, and it's really incredible. I mean, uh, credit to them is this this set was beautiful and the stop motion was great it just not not for this film it just didn't need to be there kind of kind of sounds a little bit like the octopus and goonies right like yeah yeah exactly yeah. Like, like cutting that scene out yeah you're you like as a fan you love that it happened but at the same time you're glad it wasn't in there but it'd be awesome to find is there footage of that i mean yeah yeah you can see the footage yeah. of the animated creature at the end of the thing moving around in claymation and stop motion and it really is cool looking but it looks like a clash of the titans kind of creature it yeah. doesn't look like you know what rob had been doing through the entire film of yeah. practical effects imagine yeah, all like that the kraken the kraken doesn't hold up these days you <laughs> yeah. know exactly. the same way it yeah. did in harryhausen yep. you yeah. know and right. so yeah Imagine all that work, though, all that that time and energy that that Rob yeah, that's no... put into it, and then to, if it had made the movie, just taking you right out and yeah, kind of watered down everything. But yeah, I think that was the right choice. Yeah, it's definitely no small effort to do what they did, but it's, it's that is a bold and and brave decision to make. One I'm sure that a lot of those people were like very frustrated with. Oh but. yeah, I'm sure to do <laughs> but, that and to be like, oh, by the way, we're not using that. Yeah, they're like, what? You, know, you worked like, on I the can... thing. What did you do? Well, uh, yeah. you'll never see it. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
So so we're left with our our sort of open ending there. Your your downer again another I love those downer endings that uh you don't know what happens, you really don't know where you stand at the end of the movie and and then that's it. And then we get the brilliant score come in by Ennio Morricone who mm-hmm. just a, a such a great score throughout the movie just adding to the tone just another layer of of getting the themes and the tones uh, you know as a feeling for you as as a viewer um you know was so so important in this movie and really the the relationship between Carpenter and Ennio Morricone is is pretty funny that he you know another idol of his from the the spaghetti westerns and such an iconic composer finally collaborating and he's like but I want you to do my score like yeah you need to do John Carpenter's music okay so less notes like that was That's that was funny. basically what the, the note he gave him was like less notes just, well and he didn't even see the film he just created a couple cues yeah. and sent it his way and said there you go yep. and then Carpenter went to Alan Howarth, his long collaborator, and said, "Well, this isn't going to work. We got a whole movie to fill up." So, yeah. Uh, to his credit, you know, as as a film composer, I can notice these things. But you know, my wife said yesterday, watching it again, she said it's amazing how seamless it is between the two compo- three composers, really uh, working together to make a really brilliant score that feels like one composer. Uh, yeah. It was interesting to see because a lot of people said, you know, it, it clearly when Carpenter sent him his tracks and said, replicate this, he just did. Yeah. So it's more Carpenter than anything. However, yeah. um, to be able to go through and add another half of a score and make it feel like seamless and, and like one composer, really pretty incredible. Um, it is a really great score yeah. i mean it's it's That's really beautiful. well done well yeah. apparently apparently also you know Mer- morricone also did um hateful eight and whatever whatever takes he didn't i i what i heard is that some of the takes from because tarantino's a huge he's obviously influenced by carpenter and he was excited to get the same composer but apparently he used some of the takes that weren't used in mm-hmm. the thing and used yeah. them in hateful eight. Oh wow. yeah i mean that was the hateful eight I'm not a fan of the movie in general. I think there's, mm-hmm. for for Tarantino reasons, just too much. Like he pushes it. It's a great idea. Yeah, too, it's not my favorite. Too gory. Too he pushes the envelope too far. But, um, you know, there's so many obvious parallels to the thing with with yeah. the setting itself. The music is the score to the thing. The movie stars Kurt Russell. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's so much thing going on there ultimately it doesn't work for me but uh, works better in reservoir dogs yeah yeah <laughs> um minus the minus the morricone score so right yeah right. you know what though um I, I i get where he's coming from because i've had you know entire scores i've done and then they've gone a different direction and i have to produce something else oh, yeah. well i did all that work and if you're not going to use it I'll use it for another project down the road. And I have, yeah. I've, I've oh, been yeah. like, well, if this didn't get used, it's um, yours. Yeah. It's mine. I'm not going to just throw it away and it'll show up maybe a couple of years later in a different film for sure. That's how it goes. Yeah. You know? And I'm sure yeah. Tarantino ate it up, you know, like he oh, yeah. gets to use takes of, of score that wasn't used from the thing, which is yeah. such a massive influence on his filmmaking. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like that's kind of a perfect situation for him to do that. But I'm sure there are other, 
takes and other scores that he's also not been able to use that have probably popped <laughs> up in other places. Oh, yeah. So, for sure. So, uh, okay. So the movie comes out and unknowingly it's sort of set up for failure. And and there's there's a lot going on. Universal, which I believe released both this and E.T., I don't think saw the full impact that E.T. was going to have. So by placing the thing, which got, you know, decent uh, test audience reviews, they, they were making adjustments. There was a little bit of concern that, that people, you know, wasn't going to hit with people. But they place it to release three weeks after E.T., which was, in hindsight, a huge, huge mistake that you've got cuddly, friendly alien that families love. Uh, you've got, you know, another Spielberg production with Poltergeist the same year with where, where it's ultimately, a spoiler alert, a happy ending that the family's together, you know, at the end. And then you've got The Thing, which is the complete opposite, three weeks after E.T., which is like box office records and the clearly the number one movie of the year. Uh, and this was doomed. Like people were were had such a negative response when it came out, critics as well. Um, on top of that, the interest in horror films at this point was on a straight decline. It was like 70% less than it was a year prior. So that... You know, we've talked about on some of the horror movies that we've covered, the, the Friday the 13th movies and Nightmare on Elm Street, that, you know, there's a massive amount of horror movies being made. And the peak is really in the very early 80s, even and though it's... that trend lasts all the way through. <laughs> you know, it's just getting less and less less hits throughout the years. But um, so it's sort of, of doomed. And some of the reviews are like, it's the most hated movie of all time. It's instant junk. It's wretched excess. It's boring. And that's from critics like, like Roger Ebert and, you know, high level critics. And it's, it's really, it's not good. <laughs> um, so, which leads us to box office glory. All right. So, Let's look at the actual numbers now. So the film shot, I believe, the from August to November of 1981. It shot in uh, Stewart, British Columbia, and Juneau, Alaska, which was, by the way, we didn't talk about it. Those using those exterior locations was so key. I mean, so yeah, difficult, wow. yeah. so yeah. difficult to film in, and have to like, you know, use like snow plows to get up to the set from where they were staying. Yeah. And oh my god! I mean, could you? And, yeah. Could you imagine if they had done something like Gremlins, where they just painted like snow on the, yeah. on the parking lot? And just, I mean, really, no. like you could have done the whole movie on the Universal back lot, but you know, using those, it added so much character to the For movie sure. and the environment. So important. Um, it had a fifteen million dollar budget, as we talked about. It opens up June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty two, at number eight. Ooh, the hateful eight. Maybe that's, that's why he made that movie. Uh, it opened up against Blade Runner and Megaforce. And everyone knows Megaforce was the number one movie of the week. <laughs> um, and I would have opened this up in the wintertime. I mean, that's just like a yeah. no-brainer. Yeah. yeah. Take advantage of the cold weather. Yep. Crazy. This is, this is like a perfect fit for 
pushing it till the winter. Yeah. Yep. But uh, it only has a $3.1 million opening weekend. It ends up with a total domestic run of 13.7 and 19 million worldwide. So with, you know, the, the production budget is 15 with all the advertising, it's probably, you know, usually closer to double that. So somewhere 25 to 30 million. This movie is, 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 a, is lost money big time. Uh, it ends up as number 50 of 1982, smack dab in the middle of Grease 2 and author, author with Al Pacino. So, Grease 2, a yeah, cool writer. It, it could, the, That's the thing, a good movie. The thing could not catch up to Grease 2, unfortunately. Well, he got Michelle Pfeiffer. What, what can you do? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that top 10 of, of that weekend of June 25th, I mean, Look at what's in there. You've got E.T., you've got Blade Runner, uh, Rocky Three, Star Trek Two, Annie, Poltergeist. Ooh. Yeah, it's uh, you got a re-release of Bambi in there kind of right behind them. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. That's a tough weekend. Yeah. Isn't it in- so insane, though, that a film that flopped that hard, I-, I can go to Target right now and go to the toy section and not find a single E.T. toy but yeah. I can find a thing toy just sitting right there on the shelf. It's interesting that isn't that, they, that interesting? Yeah, that they in all the the comebacks, don't make me go grab my my stuffed uh, ET. <laughs> I'll, no, I'll no, I'm it. just saying that like it's interesting the way that this has changed over the years. We'll get to that, but that yeah, who would have predicted when the numbers came in? This was such a flop that you know. 30 plus years later, there would be like a rabid fan base buying toys of this film, not the number one film of the year on the shelf right next to it, E.T. That's just kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, it's weird how how things play out sometimes. It's it's crazy to me that in all the like remarketing of old things and rebooting that there hasn't been any kind of nothing with E.T. Like they've done nothing after all the massive marketing that happened in the, the mid 80s for the movie and now like there's nothing there's no et toys or or video games or anything well maybe it's because you didn't get any fang toys when it came out but yeah. you got plenty of et toys yeah. so there's more than enough to go around so. yeah maybe that's it. et's et's still trying to recover from its atari game yeah uh, you're right that's it yeah. well uh, part of the of having these like toys based on these old properties and stuff like there's there's something visually striking about all these characters and all of that i mean mm-hmm. it's not they're not toys you know they're they're collectibles they're act- they're yeah they're, they're sculptures action. you know you're not you're like no kid is like oh i want to think i mean some kids probably are but they're not like little little toys that they would play with like from their like their cartoons that they're watching or whatever they're visually striking they're interesting they can almost be on display and yeah they're cool little action figures or whatever <laughs> their parents but, are getting them for them but yeah it's they're clearly like you know it's it's definitely part of the nostalgia hook of of for us but again there's like but there's also the design of of from the film that like oh yeah well that's actually kind of neat imagine seeing all these characters as action figures that's cool let's try that you know or you know i, I don't know so there's Something too. It's not like oh well, ET was such an amazing. I mean, ET is just a silly, like a family film. You know, it's like a watch yourself. (laughs) 
You're on thin ice right there. It's not a sci-fi movie. I mean, I mean, it is, but it's you know, it's a family. Yeah, it's it's a different. It's a whole different. It's a family movie. What are you guys talking about? Did did I say something controversial all of a sudden? Don't minimize it. Do not minimize it, David. I'm just saying you're not making just a family movie. The reason. Okay. All right. Well. You know, but so yeah, but it is fascinating because it is like those old properties can come back, and like now that uh, us as kids uh, who were kids at the time, like, hey, I've got I've got extra money. Actually, boy, that movie was neat, and look at the design of that. That's cool. Like, I I kind of want to have that, and that was not something that ever could have existed back then. Yeah. Speaking of the thing, toys. uh, Somebody at some point made a fake toy commercial like from the 80s you know they made it now but seemed like it was just like a gi old gi joe toy commercial but with the thing toys Mm. it's hilarious from john carpenter's the thing now the ultimate alien terror is in the palm of your hand it's palmer he's turning into a thing quick windows blast him with the flamethrower oh no he's got windows real alien ooze Oh no, he's getting away! But Andre McCready won't let him escape. Hey, where's Blair? Ah! The thing action figures come with everything you see here. Each figure sold separately. I also learned from my friends who collect all of those. You know, they're more like art. They're they're like sculptures. They're not toys that, uh, if I call them dolls, I get in trouble. Oh. Uh, you know, I made a joke like, "Oh yeah, I, I like that." doll you got there and uh, they get really really (laughs) mad at me um but it is true and you know what's interesting is how random it is because yes i i totally agree with what you're saying is that our age group likes to see these visually stunning um subjects come to life now like killer clowns from outer space is getting that too because they're cool looking um when I say it's weird though in comparison to having a huge flop versus the number one film of the year is because you do still see like Gremlins toys and stuff that were big blockbusters. Like why not ET? So I guess it's yeah. just so it's so random what mm. what turns yeah. up and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I, I, I you know you got to figure what's what's Spielberg protecting with ET. You know, like yeah. what is, he's hiding something. Well, it's just, yeah, it's just sort of like that's an easily you know like yeah you do you relaunch that you can definitely get. You can definitely get something for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see. You know, it's, I, I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, every everything under the sun is uh, being remade or rebooted or a, a video game version of it. So uh, I would guess we, we've not seen the last of E.T. It's just some family. E.T. Just video some... game. Yeah, that'll happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant idea. They've got to make it work. But It's just some um, family film from the 80s. It's nothing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm, it's I'm, basically I'm, Harry and the Hendersons. Uh, before Harry and the Hendersons, well, there's going to be a fight here. There's going to be a mute. Is there a it's way the to same movie? You? It's the same movie. It's not the same movie. <laughs> it's basically the same movie. <laughs> um, all right. Well, what else do we have to talk about? <laughs> all right. So let's. So the fallout of this is is disastrous for John Carpenter. I mean, this is his this is his first shot at a big budget movie, and from the studio's point of view, he's blown it. We know that is not exactly the truth, but that's the perspective hmm. of it. So he his career is in panic mode at this point. So he turns around and has to do not necessarily a movie he wanted to do, but he does Starman as sort of a like, you've done the really rough, violent, 
edgy movies. Now you got to do something nice. <laughs> so was, Christ, was Christina a made for TV movie? No, Christine. No. Yeah, but I think that was right after Starman. I believe. I think it was right before Starman. Before, but, yeah. Was yeah. it? Okay. Uh, so he was probably Christine was probably already in production. In production when this yeah. comes out. So yeah. Um, so same thing. He's got a you know he's got a backpedal a little bit with Starman, which right. which did sort of like level off for him because that was another that was a successful movie. So, um, but yeah, it's like always his passion projects and the ones that are he puts the most into. It's like they don't always end up like big trouble in little China. We, we saw didn't uh, end well for him and, and really was the last sort of big studio movie that he would do. Um, but, and he's devastated. He's like devastated by putting, imagine just putting so much thought and just having, I would assume just so much confidence that it's really going to do well. This is a great movie. I know I've got a great movie here and then everyone rejects it. <laughs> Well, you know, that'll be the the theme of Carpenter through the 80s and 90s is, mm-hmm. hey, I got a great film here and everybody's going to reject it. Yeah, right. You know? But in doing so, you know, you talk about Big Trouble too. his his reaction to working big budget is to say, well, then screw all of you. I'm going back to the basics of where Carpenter thrives. We've talked about this on other episodes of him, too, is. Carpenter thrives when he's got limitations. Don't mm-hmm. give him a big budget. Yeah. Right. Give him a little budget and he will get a brilliant film because he follows up Big Trouble with Prince of Darkness, which is amazing, which was an immediate reaction to saying, well, then I'm going back to my basics. And I think that that's interesting story of him is that yeah. he just keeps trying and everybody goes, no, thanks. That didn't work. And then 15 years later, they go, boy, that was brilliant. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. It's weird. Yeah. It's that, that really is the story of his whole career. Yeah, and then you know, as time goes on, the appreciation starts to grow. You know, like kids like me when I'm 11 in 1991, watching it on VHS and and loving the movie. You know, where so VHS was huge, was so important for this movie, and and the replays on TV uh, on, on TV, like on I don't remember if it was like USA Up All Night or TNT, like late night movies and. But I feel like it was one of those channels that that would air it regularly, and and that kind of started to build the momentum back. And and it was always when I worked at Suncoast, we sold the thing all the time at that point. And then it came out on DVD, and then it was even more. And then, uh, you know, so so you have a wave of filmmakers coming up who also loved it as a kid. I mean, we see a whole episode of the X-Files, one of the early seasons, that's just a straight remake of the thing. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can start to see its influence and Carpenter's influence and people like Tarantino. And 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 we've talked about, again, like, like you said, EK, we've talked about this on other episodes, that the, there's uh, his impact is felt way, way later. Um, and there's you know, there's constantly life. There's in 1992, they come out with a thing comic book series that immediately follows, uh, follows the ending of the movie. And I've read them and they're, they're not great, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but it's like, they go in a really weird direction that, that, uh, you know, you find like they get rescued and child's is the thing. And then they're on a submarine and the same thing like basically the movie happens again, but this time on a submarine, then they, you know, Childs or McCready's chasing Childs this whole time and all over like the world. And then they're in like the desert and it's like G.I. Joe. It kind of becomes like G.I. Joe 
at that point. <laughs> um, so When's really, alien like, versus predator versus the thing coming. <laughs> that'd be interesting. <laughs> but, uh, so well, they're all in Antarctica, so it would work. Hey, yeah. yeah. Remember that's alien versus predator starts in Antarctica. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the the surprise novel- cameo by the thing. Why didn't that happen in that movie? <laughs> a hooded figure comes up and it takes its hood back, and it's the crazy thing. It's her tear face. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Blair monster survived. Um, then we've got 2002, a PlayStation 2 video game that jo- supposedly John Carpenter said that that's canon. That you're you are you know you're a member of the rescue team who shows up. Uh, Ek, did you have that? Do you have that game? No, I have not played that game. I would love to though. I held it in my hands at like Circuit City like twenty times. It's like I should buy it. I don't want to spend like forty bucks on it though. Yeah, I'm gonna wait till it's cheaper. And then by the time it was cheaper and it was like five dollars, and I don't know. I don't think I was using my PS too much anymore, but. Um, <laughs> But supposedly that game is canon, what happens in there. So uh, you get some things answered and, and they come across the remnants of of the camp and they find the, the audio tapes from McCready. They find those mm. and they're looking for McCready and looking for Childs and there's signs that maybe they didn't die. Maybe they're still alive somewhere. Mm. Um, and they find, you know, characters from the first movie, like their remains and everything. And I think that you sort of see there's where you sort of see Nalls. You get some answers mm-hmm. to what happened there. But uh, uh, the the prequel movie comes out in 2011, which also has the title of The Thing. Now, I only recently watched it, and I actually didn't hate it. I get, I completely understand why it wasn't a success and why it was misleading for people. But there's some great, great detail work. It's basically it's the story of the Norwegian camp, mm-hmm. and they go to painstaking details of why everything is where it is when McCready and Copper go to that camp. Mm. Like you see everything. You see wow. the dogs and how the dogs get, you right. know, become the thing, and and uh, the the person who slit his throat. Like you see that happen. You see where like there's an axe in the wall. You see how that axe got in the wall. Um, everything where the ice is. You know where they drag the the block of ice to. Um, wow. You know the story within the characters is not nearly as compelling as it's sort of just like treading on the same plot line so it mm-hmm. doesn't really feel like anything new and there's a way too over the top you know cgi fight sequence at the end that really is a bummer but you've got a, a lead character that um you know you don't know where that character is when the 1982 version starts so it's a really fascinating look if you watch that one first and then watch the the carpenter version see how they you know the, it ends like the post credit scene is the helicopter taking off and shooting at right. the oh. dogs yeah interesting so it's a very it, like, rogue one yeah exactly yeah yeah it leads uh, right into carpenters does uh does is that movie does it is everyone's technically speaking Norwegian, but they do it in English a la yeah. the thirteenth <laughs> yeah. warrior. Yeah. Yes. Kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Which I love that I I love that concept. You know, it's like you're you're re- it the it's in the language that the the audience is supposed to understand, not the language of the mm-hmm. the characters. Right. And it's fun. 
There's some yeah. cool moments in it too. I, I don't like, I don't hate the movie at all. Yeah, I've seen it. I don't hate it. It's an interesting companion God. piece. It certainly is like a retelling and it's, you know, it's I don't not hate this. It's not groundbreaking, but it's, it's worth a watch. It's okay. Sure. It's fine. <laughs> That's if you're, if David you're a fan, if you're a fan of the 82, like it's like John's saying, you know, it's kind of interesting to see how yeah. the opening of 82 gets to where it is. I would, I would think making that prequel, like it's, it's, there's a reverence to the Carpenter film, like, you know, and, and it not just, it's not, it's clearly not like a money grab. It's like, well, you know, we can try to do something interesting with this story that, that has already happened. Like that, that's what's so great about the opening of the movie is like all this stuff, like all this stuff happened. Well, the thing we'll, is, and you'll never know the truth. Well, this well, movie attempts to do that. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, and I think the thing is, is like when the movie released, like it didn't tell you it was a prequel, right? Like right. there was a lot of mm. like people, I think, thought it was a remake. Yeah. And then it's not until you get to the very end that you understand that it's a prequel. And I think, you know, it's clever, but not Again, I might watch like it. Greatly done. I might yeah. watch that. I think it's I definitely watch worth it. watching. Uh, EK, did you see it? Did you? Did I you haven't. I've always mm-hmm. wanted to. I just haven't gotten around to it. It's not like I was boycotting it or anything. I just, it's one of those things that when it first came out, it was really on my radar. And then if you miss that window, yep. you're distracted by all the other things that are coming out after and you just forget about it. And that's one of those things is actually when we first discussed doing this episode, I was like, you know what I should probably do is finally get around to watching that. <laughs> and then I didn't. So I'm, uh, I'm curious what you what you think of it. So after you do watch it, let me know. Yeah, I will. Oh, speaking of, I don't know. Um, so I, I sent you guys something today talking about the legacy of the thing. Yeah, and hopefully you guys got to watch it. Yeah. But So I discovered mm-hmm. that uh, I think right before my daughter was born. So this would have been quite some time ago, maybe 12, 13 years ago. This duo, Zombie Zombie, who did this homage to the thing, but all through, again, stop motion animation and miniatures. So, of course, I loved it. Basically recreating the thing with G.I. Joe's. So (laughs) I highly recommend to your listeners to take the time to go watch. It's like six minutes long, but it is it is really, really fun to watch. And you can just tell it was a love letter and uh what a what a great little you know attention to detail um especially at a time where carpenter was getting a little bit of a resurgence but this is before he had started putting out albums again and all this kind of stuff so this was at a moment of just pure fandom when it maybe wasn't as popular to mm-hmm. to be geeking out over john carpenter like mm-hmm. it is today so yeah. that's why i also like it is it's very sincere it's not you know, it's not just kind of riding that wave of nostalgia. It was it was at a time when nobody was really doing this. Yeah, that that video is fantastic. Uh, we'll have to put a link up to it too. But yeah. uh, um, the show notes. The uh, what else? There was so then we we talked about the board game, which is called the Thing at Outpost Thirty One. Even though it's it's infection, out, yeah, infection inf- at Outpost Thirty One. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Super fun. Uh, highly recommend it. It is expensive, but if you're a fan of the movie, it's worth playing. And the more players you get, the better it is. It's kind of like, it's kind of like Clue. Like there's similarities to Clue that there's like three sections. That, you know, the, the the board is 
is the outpost and each room like you see in the movie and you have to move through it's divided into three sections and you have to move through the three sections and each time you move to a new section another thing is introduced so everybody draws cards and you either get a human or a thing so when it starts one of you is the thing in in the second section two of you are the thing and the third section three of you are the thing plus whoever has been taken over privately you know by whoever was the thing so it could be going to the third section there's like one human yeah and then it's the, a it's a goal. great social deduction game yeah that's that's best with more people right like the more people you have playing it the better and the goal is to get out of the third section and, and to the helicopter and off the uh helicopter with mm. no alien no things in your party so <laughs> and it is freaking hard to win as a human i'm it just is. saying it it is really difficult it's doable but it's hard it is doable but it is very difficult yeah, yeah. save but, the world save but, the cheerleader save the world what <laughs> mm-hmm. uh but a lot of fun so if you're a fan of the movie you should pick up the board game okay, um, yeah I think they did a re-release, so I think you can find it again, and it might not be as expensive. Because mm-hmm. I know when the original run came out, it was like thirty-five bucks, forty bucks, and then it sold out. It was a Mondo release board game, so I don't. We've talked about Mondo before in the past, but uh, they did. They've done some limited board game releases, and this was kind of their first go. Uh, so it was difficult to find, and it like. At certain points, you couldn't find it for less than two hundred dollars on on yeah re- resale. Sure, but but now that's down. So I think I think they did re-release it. Mm-hmm. So all of that being said, let's let's bring back our our Kurt Russell scale of <laughs> how many Kurt Russells would we give the thing? All of them. All of them, yeah. I, I think uh, for all me, the Kurt Russells out of thirteen, I'm gonna give it eighteen oh, Kurt wow. Russells. Yeah, wow. So that's my thoughts. What about you guys? Uh, you know, I'm right up there. Uh, you know, this this could be my highest rated Kurt Russell movie. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, twelve, twelve and a half out of thirteen. Wow, nice, David. I don't go that high. Never. You Never. you you hover right around the seven eight. I'm a mark. seven eight guy. Yeah. Most <laughs> most things are okay. Brent. Ek, what about you? Ek. Uh, well, I think as a as a film in general, it's it's way up there. I think as far as a Kurt Russell film, uh, it's a very solid one. I, I you know we're gonna get banned from well good thing you guys are taking a break because uh Uh no i i do think it's great but i i don't know if it would take for me personally speaking big trouble and escape from new york and captain ron if i'm going to be honest oh sure those are for me like if i was on a stranded island and could only have certain kurt russell performances it would be those now if i could have certain john carpenter films we're having a different conversation but uh you know out of 13 it would still be a, a 12 because then the other ones could be up by a quarters of a kurt russell you know a lock of hair so yeah you know it's it's close but uh, this is a near perfect film for me uh, as well i mean it's really there there's nothing to to complain about this is a, a brilliant film is it possible that this can be my 
not my favorite Kurt Russell movie that he's done with Carpenter, or it could be my favorite Kurt Russell movie that he's done with Carpenter, but not my favorite Kurt Russell movie. Does that sure. make yeah, that, sense? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I follow that. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, this is this is great. I mean, I like, I, I'm with EK. I do like Big Trouble quite a bit. And might be, that might actually be my favorite Kurt Russell one, but this is, again, super close. I think it's my favorite uh, Carpenter movie. Um, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The I, You know, guys, I... The more I've thought about it over the years, I I, I think I'm going to make it official that the, the thing is my f- favorite movie of all time. Oh, wow. It's official. It's just, it's like grown over the years. And I, of anybody who knows me knows that I have a very special place for the Godfather saga. That's one and two in chronological order. Uh, that was my favorite forever. Um, I think the thing has slid kind of right past it. And Godfather Saga is in at number two. Wow. And I think Aliens number three and then Chinatown. That's that's my top All right. four. Wow. So that's you sick. and the thing are going steady, huh? Yeah. It's like, wow. it's like social media official. We, we made uh, it just in time for Kurt Russell's birthday, too. What a, yeah, gift. I know. What a gift for him. But that's okay. what he was hoping for this year. Yeah. So all the movies out there, good burger, not as good. You're saying good. That's she's now, all. If bad. it was great burger, it'd be a different story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, well, that's good. Wow. Well, this is it. This is breaking news here. This uh, is this is hot the, news. The, the new hot all-time fave of uh, of the host of Reconsideration. Yeah. It's the thing, and we're it's... covering it today. We're covering it, and it's and it's a, a fitting way to to take our you know our pause that unfortunately we have to do. Uh, mm. I wish I, I wish we didn't, but circumstances are kind of uh, forcing it for right now, at least. Mm. But uh, you know, I, I think I'm going to speak for you guys, but I've loved doing this show and have had so much fun, you know, covering it since the the summer of 2018 when we started with. National Lampoon's Vacation, Escape from New York, and Jaws and Independence Day. And we've covered big movies, smaller movies like At Close Range that nobody talks about anymore. And, uh, <laughs> you know, our Paul Newman stuff and always looking at Kurt and Gene Hackman. And and I've had so much fun bringing on awesome, awesome, cool people like UEK and and Joe Seta and uh, Joel Sweeney and John Kazempel and and Lindsay, my wife who came on for an episode and uh you know just it's been it's been so much fun and i've had nothing but a great time and hopefully we can keep doing it when the time is right david's we'll crying <laughs> just i'm in tears uh no <laughs> yeah i mean what what an amazing we're almost uh we're approaching uh we're getting close to four full years and uh, having doing this and you know we're yeah we've all reached a point where right now you got to take a little little break from our steady schedule um but uh, you know for people listening into the future there won't be any breaks because we anticipate coming back with more episodes as we can and we're going to do our you know our best and and all that so so for right now in the present day uh in in 2022 we're we're just doing what uh, any human being needs to do to take care of themselves and uh, and take care of, uh, of of things, and then hopefully we can all reunite and do this a lot. But you know, we anticipate to do at least some as we go. So you know, less less fewer releases over the course of a year for maybe a short period of time, but 
you know, I, there's nothing that can keep us away from these microphones uh, and, and have us talk about all the hot movies we grew up with or maybe haven't seen ever like which is mostly me so (laughs) so yeah i mean uh i'm so glad to have been doing this so far and i can and this is uh we will continue in whatever form that and frequency that takes uh i'm all on board so yeah i mean what else could i say that hasn't already been said except uh you know we love you all and we'll be back yeah thank you guys for listening you can still find us on social media we're reconsideration podcast on all the socials so check us out there and we'll make any future future announcements when we're ready to pick up uh pick up the ball again and get some new episodes out we'll be sure to let everybody know ek thank you so much for for all the theme songs that you've given over the years the original theme song the new theme song the the uh the kurt russell theme song that we had for, oh, yeah, for a I while about that yeah before we before we gave up our kurt russell segment yeah that uh, was a good time well, and maybe you, when uh, you guys come back for for the next season, we'll do another an updated theme song for that too. But it's <laughs> been a real theme song. Yeah, it's been a real uh, pleasure, and and I appreciate it. It was an honor to come back on for this because uh, a little personal note, as you guys are, you know, reminiscing. I was there the very first episode. You know, our mutual friend Jared said, "Hey, John started a podcast," and. I, I downloaded it and listened to it right away and was immediately hooked. And if you're talking about Carpenter, I was like, all right, yeah, I could get on board. So it seems very, very fitting uh, to come, you know, full circle now all these years later. And it's just, it's grown. It's been fantastic. It's fun. It's uh, something I look forward to. And for you guys to bring me in, it's kind of like, you know, when somebody's having a baby and you're like, wait, who's that guy in the corner? I nobody invited him to the hospital that's how i feel right now but at the same time i'm very excited for for all of this so uh, as a as a listener and as a fan i can't wait for you guys to come back but also as a fellow podcaster um i completely relate to saying sometimes you got to take a break and do what you got to do so it's not the end but um it's also what's best for the show yeah thanks ak you're always yeah. welcome at the hospital man <laughs> <laughs> Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you, uh, Curtis Moore for all the posters and the artwork that he's done, uh, you know, every episode and uh, so, so much appreciated. And, uh, and thank you to everybody who's listened, stay tuned, uh, and, and stay tuned for the next reconsideration whenever that comes. Take care. Bye now. <laughs>